And then really quickly. And we're back with the Philip Duff Show. Rachel Harrison at 7 p.m. on a cold December Eve. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What have you got in your glass? I have, and I'm holding this up so you can actually know I'm not lying, a Terramana margarita <laughs> with a bitter orange liqueur in it. Oh, very actually, nice. It's very nice. Yeah. I love that. I appreciate supporting the brand. I like to help to help small startup entrepreneurs like Dwayne Johnson. It's not easy <laughs> when you've only got nine figures in the bank. It's true. It's true. It's a tough business. Um, I have a uh, Irish whiskey and ginger. Slain Irish whiskey. Another client. Fine, fine stuff from young Mr. Cunningham. So now fighting it out with 53 bastard distilleries in Ireland. I know. Can you believe that? I remember... What was that back in 2010 when it expanded to like 13, right? Is that right? Am I making that up? I went to college for the first two years in a literal cow college in a place called Dundalk on the border. And we were very excited because a year or two before I went, the third distillery in Ireland opened. And we were like, whew, it's right here in town. And now I think every fourth business is a distillery. (laughs) <laughs> well, speaking of Dundalk, I used to drive through Dundalk on my way to the south when I lived in Northern Ireland all the time. I know Dundalk well. <laughs> Dundalk's a lot of fun. Joe Biden even stopped there recently. Really? Yeah. Part of his family's from there. Like most American politicians, he's got family everywhere. But he is part of his family are actually from County Louth. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I don't know. My family says, you know, they're they're all they're all from Cork, but everybody's from Cork because that's where everybody left. But um, apparently, we are either at the, we're Athlone and Cork. But I lived in the north. I lived in Port Stewart, so and worked in Coleraine. What were you doing? I never asked you about this. Um, <laughs> uh, I was engaged to a man from Northern Ireland, so that'll I do it. yeah, that'll do it. So I moved there with him in 1998. Um. And we just we lived in Belfast for six months and Port Stewart for six months. It was great, lovely, lovely stuff. And now, uh, not that you need any incentive to go back. It's chock a block with distilleries, <laughs> and we represent one, Slane Whiskey. So my team has been. Um, so I've had four people from RHC go visit uh, Slane and the castle and Alex and everybody. Um, and I have not had the privilege yet, sadly. It does seem like you've been jet-setting around, though. You've been in um, Australia, up and down the West Coast, like San Diego just now? Well, actually, I was in San Diego. Uh, part of part of the reason I was there is I wanted to visit our friend Chris Patino and his uh-huh. family. Good, good. So, How yeah, are the so Patinos? They are wonderful. They're doing well. They just celebrated uh, Dell's fifth birthday, which is very exciting. So... It was really, I haven't seen Chris Patino and Heather and the kids in, God, it must have been pre-pandemic. No, it was during the pandemic, actually. So I saw them. But other than that, um, I was in LA to open up Dwayne Johnson's Holiday House, the Terramana Mana House, and then um, San Francisco to visit our client and bar, uh, True Laurel. Oh, right. Whereabouts is that in San Francisco? <laughs> it's kind of so funny. I you would think I would know these neighborhoods. It's in the mission, I believe. Um, but you know, of course I took a cab. So who who really knows? Obviously. Yeah, it's somewhere <laughs> in San Francisco. Just get in and out of the cab, try to dodge the zombies. <laughs> yeah, San Francisco's um it's not as bad as what people uh said, 
it was going to be. I, I think I was expecting a dystopian, you know, universe. And it was great. It was, you know, San Francisco is always so wonderful and lovely. Um, you know, of course, I was staying right next to the Tenderloin. All of the hotels are kind of there. So that was slightly apocalyptic. But I think it was pre-pandemic, too. So anyway. But uh, yeah. And then, of course, you know, I was in Singapore for uh, World's 50 Best, which was so much fun and so wonderful. Um, oh, my God. It's just so fun wandering around a random city, you know, uh, and seeing all of these people, you know, um, outside of New Orleans, which, of course, we do every year. But Singapore just feels so much different to do that. And um, then I went to Bali because we work with the Viceroy Hotel in Bali, the Viceroy Resort. And that's incredible. And then, of course, yeah, Sydney, visiting a lot of our friends in Sydney. So it was while you're fun. in the neighborhood, why not? Nip it's down kind of to... I was like, oh, I'll just stop by. And we work with Breville out there, um, you know, juicers and espresso makers. Um, of course, Four Pillars uh, and, you know, a whole bunch of other brands in Australia that we love. Oh, I didn't know about the Breville connection. I didn't know you'd moved into kitchen appliances. We do, we do some products and some, uh, yeah, some CPG. I'm obsessed with Breville. I have one of their espresso makers and I'm a really good foamer. I didn't know I was going to be, but every day, it's all I do. Goodbye, Nespresso. Goodbye, French press. Hello, Breville espresso maker. Fighting talk. See, if you say Breville to me, I immediately think toaster. I know. Yeah. That's Cause my in, reference in Europe, you got, is, did you make toasties? Is that what it was? The Breville was always for, is that uh, what yeah. 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 To- toasty would be very much an English thing. Yeah. And the Breville was it, but just a general, you know, two or four slice toaster. You'd say, you know, even pop it in the Breville. I think that might've been an ad slogan once. Huh. Oh, I don't think it was very popular in the United States when I was growing up. That's because um, you weren't around with Rachel Harrison Communications to, fair. you know, if you'd only grown up a bit more precociously, you could have got going <laughs> on this account a bit earlier. I know. I really should have started my career much earlier. The world would be in a better place. Well, your company is so large now. Is it true that Rachel Harrison Communications has four Rachels apart from you working for it? Yes. How did you know <laughs> that? How did you know that? And one of the uh, Rachels told me. <laughs> hey. Is it four? It might be. I think it's five, including myself. Well, that would be correct. Yes. And some of them spell it wrong. And I really questioned whether I should hire those people. They're lucky they're very good at their job. And like lots of, how can I say it, non-men in the company. We have lots of non-men, but we have a lot of men too. Um, We just brought on two additional members of the male species. Ringing up to what, 10% of the staff? God, I don't know. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, we have 70 team members and I'm thinking 10, 10 might be men, I believe, and growing. We've just interviewed a few men too. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's nice to hear you're open to, you know, helping out this disadvantaged minority. <laughs> uh, we try. <laughs> so. For anybody who might not know, anybody who's just got out of a penitentiary, for instance, or emerged from a cave in Tora Bora, can you like give us a quick elevator pitch of you know how you came to be the colossus that you are and made it to the very top of your profession to be on the Philip Duff show? 
Oh my heavens. I know. I mean, this is really the pinnacle, Philip. <laughs> um, I don't even know how to answer that. I think I wanted to be a fashion designer. Um, and then I went to the, well, I graduated from URI with marketing and textiles, went to the London College of Fashion which with the gentleman that I was engaged to. After Ireland, we moved to London. Realized I was never going to be a famous designer. I realized I didn't really have the talent. Although I did study under Alex McQueen's draping instructor, which was very exciting, uh, and met uh, Lee McQueen, which was really exciting. But um, I decided that I wanted to be connected to fashion in some way. And so I got into uh, public relations working for Topshop. So working for the Arcadia brand. And I walked in and interviewed for the job. And they're like, okay, you've got a job, you know, give your visa, um, you know, your visa details to X, Y, and Z. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sorry. I don't, I don't have a visa. <laughs> and they were like, well, you, you can't work here. And I'm like, no, 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 I'll just show up every day for free and I'll just work like a normal employee and you don't really need to pay me. And they were like, okay, I guess we can put this under an internship type of situation. And, um, I worked there for two years for free and they kept promoting me, <laughs> even though I wasn't getting paid. But I got, uh, I think I got a hundred pound stipend weekly, a complimentary tube pass, and I could eat in the canteen for free. But um, that was my first foray into public relations. And when I moved to New York, nobody would hire me in fashion public relations because all of my contacts were in London. And nobody back then in 2004 knew what Topshop was. So uh, I interviewed, oh my gosh, I think everywhere. And 2004, it, it was a tough job market. I think it was pretty hard to get a job. And um, Susan Magrino hired me. And well, first she interviewed me and she said, well, you've lived in three countries. Would you like to do travel PR? And I said, oh, I, of course, I have a passion for travel. And I had, could never afford to travel anywhere. So I had no clue about travel except for the places I had been um, and just started there. Susan was a tough boss. You know, it was a challenging environment. I think we were working 12, 14 hour days and weekends. It was, she taught me, I would probably say everything I know, uh, not really through love, mostly through fear. <laughs> Although I respect her and love her very much. And um, she really, she taught me uh, work ethic. She really taught me the craft. Um. She taught me quality control, uh, hustle, everything. You know, I I really have a, a lot of my um, a lot of my skills really came from the Susan Magrino agency and people like Susan Magrino and Katie Barr and Michael Donoff all taught me things. Um, but yeah, and then it kind of goes from there. I, I worked at a big firm. I worked for Emanate. Mm -hmm. um, I worked mm -hmm. for Dan Cloras, popped back into the fire, and did a lot of kind of more. I would say. <sighs> It was a lot of hotels and a lot of liquor, but it was almost celebrity based in a, in a weird way. Like we did, we did Ciroc um, with P Diddy because Dan Flores represented P Diddy, but you know, we also, and don't judge me, but you know, I launched Donald Trump's vodka. Totally judging you. I know. Everybody hey, it was made in Holland, believe it or not. Oh, interesting. I probably should have known that. I wasn't as good of a booze publicist back then. I was just like, oh my gosh, we're working with Donald Trump and he doesn't drink alcohol. How are we going to do this? All right, shove the bottle in Johnny Depp's hand. <laughs> Get a photo of that. You know, shove up, have Khloe Kardashian take a shot of Trump vodka at the Super Bowl. 
there we go. Us Weekly people. It was, it was a different world back. This was 2007, I believe. Mm. And uh, it was a different world back then. It, it was less about understanding, you know, the nuances of booze. It was, it was less about talking with journalists and talking with other bartenders and waxing poetic over chartreuse and ice, you know, and it was, you know, what celebrities can we get to drink our booze or what, what fashion shows can we sponsor? It was very, um, it was different. It was just different. Uh, we were, I worked with Dom Perignon as well. And that was a little bit more craft, really understanding the brand, but it was, let's uh, have Karl Lagerfeld do a, you know, do a, do our Dom Perignon label or our campaign. It was, it was a lot about, um, a little bit more about flash, uh, and less about really the truly. Oh. The flash briefing. Hold on a second. Alexa just jumped in. <laughs> Welcome, Alexa, to the show. And it just gave me information on the flash. Alexa, turn off, please. Okay. Sorry. You know, Alexa's still listening, right? I know. Alexa's. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, she does that a lot. It's really weird. Uh, yeah. I know. Um, anyway, uh, I. Then I was in house at Andaz, which I feel like you and I met. I met you I... before then. I remember when you went to Andaz. Oh, really? So you you knew me. So I went from Dan Cloros to Andaz. So I guess I must have known you at DKC. Um, I think we probably became friends when I was at Andaz because I met you like really kind of through Yale, uh, L. Mm-hmm. Weisberg. And uh, it was very interesting. I, I was always known as a hotel person. Um, travel was really my expertise. It, it still is. And I and I love hotels and I love, um, oh God, I love everything within the hotel, the bars, the restaurants, the suites, the rooms, the fact that you can kind of build so much creativity within the four walls of a hotel. I love promoting the destinations of where the hotels are. I love travel hotels and all of those. But when I started with Andas, um, my general managers, uh, Tony Hinterstoyser and Jonathan Froelich, um, both came to me and said, we really want our bars to be the hub of, of the hotels. We want, we want people here drinking and, you know, having convivial conversations. I remember exactly them saying, I was like, I have to look up convivial. Um, no one ever actually says convivial out loud who isn't wearing a cravat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Just to be clear, it's one of those things people write down but never pronounce. I it, somebody using that in conversation. I remember, like you know, Tony was is German and Jonathan's Australian, so of course, you know, they were using. <laughs> they were definitely speaking a language that I, that I raised one eyebrow often, giggled, and then you know, I love them to death. So uh, mm-hmm. you know, I would look up words and then regurgitate them back to them to make them laugh. But anyway. Um, at the time, uh, they had hired Alchemy Consulting to do our cocktail program. And uh-huh. that was Toby Maloney, Joaquin Simo, Jason Cott. Um, and I, <laughs> they might kill me for saying this. They weren't big fans of PR people back then. This was 2010. And they ignored me for the most part at the very beginning. And, you know, I'd ask them questions and they would answer kind of monosyllabolically. And um, at one point in time, 
I went up to, I think, Jason Cott, who I love more than anything, but is a misanthrope, <laughs> to say the least. And uh, and he, I, I just kind of said, hey, do you think I can join one of your kind of bartending classes while you're training staff? And um, And he said, why? Why would you want to do that? And I was like, well, if I'm going to be promoting the bar and the bar program and everything that you're doing, I think I should have a better understanding and a better knowledge of what you're actually doing. And it was just, there was a change in him and in the rest of Alchemy. And they all looked at me and I think they said, huh, I think this is a different publicist. I think this is a different person, a different type of person. And uh, we all became friends, really, really, really good friends. They uh, taught me they really gave me my um, my knowledge, my ground knowledge, my beginning knowledge, uh, the majority of it, uh, the building blocks, the first layer of building blocks of my um, my knowledge about booze and liquor. I mean, learning from Toby Maloney is insane. And Joaquin Simo about everything. Uh, it, it was just, you know, muscle memory and, and ice content and dilution and freaking chartreuse and uh, I mean, more chartreuse. <laughs> I mean, they love chartreuse. And so, and I did back that too, probably too much, but I mean, you know, just learning the basics of every cocktail sours and, you know, what makes a stirred cocktail and a shaken cocktail and, you know, adding citrus, just everything. I mean, they taught me the building blocks of it and my mind exploded and I just didn't realize how much there was. I had done booze PR, but like I said, I was really pushing it in celebrities' hands and hoping we get a shot in People magazine. And all of a sudden, I was learning something that I didn't even know was there to learn. I just thought it was ingredients put in a glass, you make it, you give it to a human. And truth be told, I was probably drinking vodka sodas back then. No, you probably weren't. They weren't even that big. But America was still in its infancy back then, Rachel. Like I left London in 95, having worked there. And moved to uh, Holland, but I stayed in very close contact. And until around that time, Americans were extremely resistant to this kind of new old way of making cocktails. Because the point of view back then was, if you made, you know, if you got a dollar tip an hour and you made, you know, 200 drinks an hour, uh, well, that was 200 bucks an hour. And nobody wanted to slow down. So I had, I, I was roundly laughed out by my American friends for <laughs> almost a decade, actually. Many many of whom, a few years after that, were going around wearing uh, chef coats with um, bar chef embroidered on them and their name. <laughs> but that's just the way it was. Yeah. I would say college. Um, my college drinks were Cosmos and margaritas in the summer. And chocolate martinis and uh, dirty martinis in the winter. And that was the extent of my drinking. Um, yeah. When I moved to New York, it was uh, Jack and Coke, vodka soda, and probably a lot of tequila shots. And that was that was pretty much it. And beer. And a lot of beer. And then, you know, I mean, I started getting into uh, booze with, um, you know, with the teachings of the alchemy consulting team. And all of a sudden, you know, vodka was mm, frowned upon. It was a vehicle to getting drunk. <laughs> I remember uh, being quoted. And uh, so I started poo-pooing it too. You know, I was hanging out with the cool kids, you know, and I, I believed it, you know, I drank all of the Kool-Aid and, and then, you know, moved very slowly with all of them to appreciating vodka as well. And then working with many vodka brands, but, um, but yeah, I think 
So I was with Andaz, did great hotel stuff, loved, 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 loved that team. Had a, had a little blip in the middle doing another hotel company, Island Outpost, for a year where I was their chief marketing officer. But when I started, you know, Lion and Lamb uh, in 2014 mm-hmm. was really uh, the beginning of, uh, you know, I guess me owning my own company. I guess it really was the beginning, but also finding myself, finding the type of PR I wanted to do, finding the type of clients I wanted to work with. And I never thought I was going to be a um, a liquor publicist ever. And um, I had never really done it to the extent that we do it now. And uh, the first person to give me my chance in liquor PR was Alan Katz. And he, uh, Alan called me and he said, hey, I'd be interested to see if you'd like to do the PR for uh, our new rye that's coming out. Oh, it was, it was his rock and rye. It was the Mr. Katz's rock and rye. And I said to him, I was like, I don't really do liquor PR. Like, and he goes, Rachel, he goes, you know more about liquor than any publicist I've ever met. (laughs) And I was like, you know, I'm like, we didn't, we didn't charge him a normal rate because I had a learning curve and I didn't know if I was going to be able to do it. And so, um, and I wanted to work with Alan. I love Alan. So having the chance to work with Alan Katz was a really pretty awesome opportunity. Um, but I worked my butt off and on that client, you know, we got all sorts of amazing coverage and I was really, I was really proud of the work we did. And then, um, Napogue Castle came mm-hmm. and Castle Brands. Um, and I know we worked with you during that period as well, which is really fun. We got to really delve into the Irish whiskey and, um, I think through my work with Alan Katz, Kit Kodak um, suggested us to Nipog. And those were our two liquor clients. And uh, yeah, that was that was the beginning of working in the liquor industry and uh, and Lion and Lamb and kind of growing that team. So, you know, honestly, like RHC is, in my opinion, kind of just more of an extension of Lion and Lamb. Um, my business partner and I de- decided to go our separate ways and we didn't want to, um, you know, we created that name together and we cr- had created Lion and Lamb together. So it was only fair that uh, we take what we learned and we both go our separate ways. So a lot of my team is my same team that I had at Lion and Lamb. So for me, it just feels like an extension. But um, and now here we are. It's RHC, and the easiest way to say what we do is hotels, restaurants, bars, and booze. You know, kind of rolls off the tongue. Seems to be a common thread there. Yeah, fun. Yeah, all the things I love. <laughs> so, but yeah, but you weren't always going to do this. You were on what the diving team at school. Or gymnastics or something? Yeah, I was uh, I was a competitive gymnast until I tore my ACL at 17. It's wild, isn't it? If you think about stuff like that, that you can like fuck yourself up doing a sport when you're a kid. Yeah. Like in the, lo- in the logical way of things, you shouldn't be able to do a sport to the extent that it fucks you up until you're in like the pro leagues. Should you? No, you shouldn't. Um, that was, yeah, that was pretty horrific and actually threw me into a major, major depression, actually. I think when the one, I think I was kind of known for gymnastics in my town, in my high school, and you know, and um, it, it felt like the one thing that made me unique or made me um, different. You know, it was the one thing that made me stand out. And I think, I, I think as a kid, you know, 
there's one part of you that just wants to be normal, just like everybody else, but you also want one thing that makes you special and, uh, or more and gymnastics made, made me feel special. And so when that was taken away, I mean, I was working out four hours a day, every day doing gymnastics from the age of like nine onwards. And, uh, when that was taken away, it just, I didn't know who I was anymore. It was very interesting. Uh, threw me in a major, major, major depression uh, during my final year of high school. Uh, that was pretty, actually, it was actually pretty scary. And I had to redefine myself because that was no longer going to be part of my world. And what did you redefine yourself as? Oh, I, a party girl. <laughs> oh, that, that was how you rebranded to use a PR term. Yeah. You know, high school, I was high school. I was a little bit shy. Uh, I was a little bit shy. I was potentially a little bit reserved, I guess. And uh, I was training a lot. I was competitive. I was the captain of the cheerleading team, mostly because I was good at cheerleading. I was, you know, I wasn't like one of the it was the popular kids, I guess it was, I was a really good cheerleader. Um, I was, I played, I did track, I did gymnastics. I was decent at school. And so when all of that kind of took, got taken away from me, I went to the university of Rhode Island and yeah, I just, I just did all the things instead. <laughs> I still did well in school. I graduated with, I, I think like, honestly, probably like a 2.98, like almost a 3.0 almost. But, um, but yeah, I just, I just had a lot of fun, but it almost in some ways primed me for my life in public relations. Um, I, all of, all of the girls I went to college with all came from a little bit more, um, just, I don't know how to say this, this isn't gauche, but they all came from a lot more money than I did. And, um, you know, I was paying for my own college and my mom was a single mother and my father didn't contribute to anything that I ever did. Um, and so I couldn't afford to go out like they all could afford to go out and they had their parents' credit cards or they had an allowance and I didn't, you know, I had to, I had to have a job to do that. And the job went to things like food. <laughs> um, so I used to, um, I used to make friends with the bouncers. I used to make friends with the kitchen staff so I could uh, sneak in the back. Uh, I made, you know, I, I waited tables. So I made friends with the people that I love, you know, the people, the people that worked in the industry. Um, and uh, that's how I would not pay a cover or that's how I would maybe get, you know, some of my drinks comped <laughs> by being friendly, being kind, being nice, um, but also helping out. I mean, I remember being at my bar, uh, that my local bar at Charlio's, and I remember, you know, knowing that the kitchen staff was behind there cranking away buffalo chicken fingers and everything that they were doing and knowing that the service staffs always forgets to bring them water. So I would just go to the bar and be like, Hey, can I have, you know, eight waters for, you know, for the, for table for the four, but no, yeah. for the kitchen. Staff. <laughs> I, I would bring it back to the kitchen. I would bring it back to the chefs and the Sue's. And I mean, you know, the line, the line cooks and just, I don't know, be part of, be part of the community. Um, and then I also got really good at playing pool. And then I would, pretend I wasn't good at pool. And then I would win martinis, which was also. So you hustled your way through college. I really did hustle my way through college. Yeah, I did. It was, uh, 
it was fun. I had a really good time. <laughs> Do you still hustle pool these days, you know, for old time's sake? Or? Uh, I don't, uh, except one year at Tails. Uh, I was at Jake Berger's, like, you know, his, uh, he does a dive bar crawl. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've to one of his stops on the dive bar crawl. And I, uh, Gareth Evans challenged me to a game of pool. And I'm like, huh. Let's see if I still got it. And um, I did. I think I won like five games. And Gareth was like, huh, <laughs> I didn't know you're actually good at pool. And I was like, yeah, I didn't know I still was. But so I can play once in a while. It probably depends on how much I've had to drink, frankly. Well, it was designed for drunken Americans. Like they took snooker, cut the table in half, you know, <laughs> made made the rules easier. It's a, it's a genius <laughs> formula if you think about it is it it's snooker aren't the balls smaller too yep balls are smaller right. tables bigger i used to work uh in south london where all the snooker halls were extremely extremely dodgy so everyone played snooker and then in rotterdam i worked in a place that had six pool tables upstairs oh yeah so i was a mediocre snooker player but i was quite a good pool player despite never really playing it <laughs> It's like just if you go running with weights on your legs, you know, it's easier <laughs> when, you, when you take them off. You came over to America and you're like, oh, this is easy. I can clean up. All right. This is it. Yeah, I too can hustle for martinis. <laughs> you started your career working for a tax-dodging billionaire then because Arcadia Group was Philip owned Green. by Philip Green. Did he ever pinch your arse? Apparently no. he pinched everyone else's arse. He didn't. And what was interesting is I knew his, I Well, I knew his <laughs> Back then, I know his reputation now. Um, back then, the BHS scandal hadn't happened yet. Uh, none of the other things had had really happened. And um, Philip Green loved public relations. That oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, and we were his PR team. And so he loved us. And um, he was incredibly kind to the PR team. So um, I did hear, you know, the Arcadia offer offices were off of Oxford street on burners and, you know, every floor had, you know, one floor was the sales and one floor was, you know, PR and one floor was like design and stuff like that. Um, and I did, I, I was friends with a lot of people on the other floor and they were less fans of Philip Green than I was. And, and not saying I was a fan. I just, he wasn't unkind to us. He was actually very nice. And, um, I think I was pro- I think I was the only American working there um at the time and I remember when they would bring the designs in and the whole PR team would be in there kind of giving their comments he'd be like where's a bloody American get her in here to ask her what she thinks and I'd be like I'm like from Salem Massachusetts <laughs> like I'm I'm still wearing like bell bottoms I I don't know I don't know why anybody's asking me about fashion advice <laughs> He probably you loved you because you were working for free. It doesn't get better than that as an employer. I don't even, I don't <laughs> even think he knew that. I, it's like, how you did know. you survive working for free? Seriously. Well, my the guy Brendan, who I was um, in shout the, out to Brendan. Yeah, I, yeah, that's a Brendan. Brendan Fitzpatrick, a good Irish name. Um, also, the punchline to a very homophobic joke. I'm not even going to ask what that is. <laughs> I'm sure the listeners can work it out. We have some very sophisticated fans of the show here. But anyway, uh, Brendan, <laughs> you were saying. <laughs> um, Brendan, um, Brendan basically supported me and I was working to get my visa, um, but I couldn't. 
You know what I mean? I did. I got a student visa at one point so I could work like 20 hours legally. Um, and, you know, I only lived there for three years and then um, moved to New York. So, you know, by the time any opportunity. Well, first of all, I thought I was going to marry him. And and that would have solved every, solved everything. Just to be uh, clear, we're talking about Brendan here, not Philip Green. Right? No, no. Just no. to be clear, I'm, I am certainly not Philip Green's type. <laughs> you know, they made a TV movie about him with Steve Coogan. No. Oh yeah, it's like uh, I still read the UK press, so I don't know if it was on Netflix or anything, but they definitely made the movie for anybody. There's no reason why anybody in America would know. But this is the billionaire owner of Top Shop Arcadia Group who dodged, even by European standards, an insane amount of tax and had to give some of it back and all that. But do you know actually the intersection with our world of bars and restaurants, Ms. Harrison? I do not. His deal was that he worked very closely with another Brit in Hong Kong who actually made the stuff, right? So essentially Green would order the stuff and sell it. This other guy would make it. And that guy's name was Richard Caring. Oh, I know Richard. Yeah, the Ivy. Yes, who then yeah. went on to, you know, dominate fancy upscale places like Bacchanalia in London and yeah. Sexy Fish and whatnot. But yeah, that's that's the intersection of it. Yes, yes, yes. I know Richard's son, Jamie, who is wonderful. Um, I know Richard has a reputation of his own. Uh, I've only met Richard once, so I don't really know him. But um, but he did, I mean, he created quite an empire there. Can't oh, he did? That. Well, let me yeah. ask you a question about that. So you're talking about decades ago. And you had to work. Are you calling me old? Did you? Your internship. Your internship. (laughs) But yes, to be clear, yes. Um, (laughs) But no, decades ago, your situation was a visa situation. So it's very understandable. But honestly, from that time on, a lot of people will look at cities like London and New York and Paris, Mm -hmm. uh, especially desirable fields like uh, fashion, but also PR and advertising internships are the time-honored route in. Yeah. And you can only really do it if somebody's subsidizing you. And as I was discussing uh, not long ago with no one less than Dr. Nick Morgan, late of Diageo, back in the day, a lot of countries like France and England had very robust social security. And you could kind of squeak by on benefits and social security and the odd little job. And that was an effective subsidy for the arts, right? Like David Bowie was on the dole and so were yep. the Pogues and the Rolling Stones and all that. But that's not a case now. And certainly if you look at a lot of the celebrities coming out, actors, singers, but also in PR, they're all from wealthy backgrounds. Yeah, I know. Or at least middle-class backgrounds. It's changing. Um, What's it like in PR is what I wanted to say. Uh, it it was for a very long time, the same thing. I mean, the, my starting salary in public relations in 2004 was $25,000 a year. I mean, I had to wait tables on top of that. And I remember I used to, I used to steal food from work. Like, you know, if, if they got bagels for, you know, a new business meeting, I would go and kind of squirrel away a few bagels and some cream cheese to take home so I could have food. Um, it was, but it was, you know, it was New York. You know what I mean? I wanted to be in New York. That's what I wanted to do. And, you know, it was what it was. Um, but you being older and seeing it now through a different lens, I, 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 a few years ago, I started to understand 
I started to understand how problematic that is, that the only people that can get into this type of profession are people who are subsidized because number one, the salaries are so low. And number two, the only people who can get jobs back then were people who had worked for free for years and had done internships. And now, now looking at it with more adult eyes, you realize that there's a large segment of our population who would never have those opportunities, um, never have those opportunities to be in this world, in this industry. And there's a lot of, there's a, advertising, uh, public relations, you know, all of these types of types of industries. And it's also why our profession um, is not a rainbow of humans. Um, so it's, it's interesting. And uh, it was illegal. It, it was made illegal probably may, I don't know how many years ago, but you weren't allowed to um, have people work for you for free. And so the moment we, I don't know when the law happened, but when we started Lion and Lamb, the law was already in effect, I believe. And so we paid all of our interns uh, minimum wage. There were a lot of agencies that didn't. There were a lot of agencies that continued with the age-old tradition of uh, free labor. Um, we, I didn't want to be sued or, <laughs> or fined or audited or any of those things. So uh, we decided to, to um, follow the law. But yeah, it's it's definitely um, <clears throat> it's definitely it's true in this field. It's problematic, and I think it's something that is changing slowly. I know that we're trying to change it at RHC. Um, so to the best of our ability, we have, we have a diversity council, um, that is a rainbow. Um, I, our agency is not to the level that I would like it to be in the diversity level, you know, um, but we're working on it and it's, it's less about, it's it's so interesting. It's less about taking the resumes that just come to you and it's you have to flip it. It's more about going out and finding diverse candidates. Um you have to proactively find people. How'd you do it? I mean, how do you do it? So we have somebody on our well, we have a few people on our team that um that have led the charge. Uh Alana, Michaela, and Asha. Um, not any of the other Rachels. None of the other Rachels. <laughs> the, the other Rachels are very new, by the way. They, I think that all How of the other diversity Rachels... of names. <laughs> like, uh, are, are there any Phillips in the company? We don't have a single Philip. 70 no. employees, as many as 15% of them men, and not a single. Are there any Phils? No. No Phils or Phillips? No, Jesus we have an Christ. Andrew, a Jack. A Connor. Um, who else do we have? Anyone else who sounds like they're a member of a rugby team? Ryan. <laughs> Is there a Dave? But <laughs> we don't have a Dave either. No um, Daves. We've had we've had other men roll through too. You know, like what, uh, delivery people. The guy from UPS. <laughs> no. We've had a lot of men, um, not a lot, but you know, a good Lots amount. Lots of men. There's loads of men in the office. They come and go. <laughs> It's nice to have it's nice to have a mix of men and women in the office. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love my fellow females, but um and it's nice working with a lot of other women. Um but I love having 
I love having the just a lot. I like having a lot of different people um, within the organization because it just different walks of life and different kind of backgrounds and different cultures allows for way more creativity. You know, when you have everybody who comes from the same background and looks exactly the same, all of your creative ideas are one note, you know, they're all, they're very similar. And, you know, it's really fun um, to have new ideas and new creativity and kind of coming into brainstorms and everybody being opened up to entirely new possibilities in public relations so often we're regurgitating the same creative idea every 3 years you know like it's the news cycle and um now that i've been doing it since 2001 um Oh, actually, I, you know what? I started in market research. I didn't even start there. So I guess I started in 97. But, um, you know, it's very interesting being so old <laughs> and seeing the same ideas. We gather yeah. around the fire, young ones. I know. I shall I know. tell you the tale of the Palm Pilot. Well, let me ask you one quick question about diversity as an employer before we move on and talk about funny shit and the tequila kicks in. Um, <laughs> there's certain how can I say it, flavors of it, diversity that nobody ever talks about, such as class diversity and viewpoint diversity. I'll give you an example. We have a mutual friend yep. uh, that lives in London and she's brilliant and everybody loves her. And she's a great person and very fun and runs her own company and is more into diversity than you or I or anybody of the entire Rainbow Coalition. Mm-hmm. But politically... She would pull her own fingernails out rather than hire somebody that was not a Labour voter, which is to say, essentially, the Democrat Party of the UK. Okay. And whenever I've discussed this with her, she's everything else is fine, whether it's about race or sex or gender or this or that or, you know, even visa status. She just cannot. She says, I just can't. I can't. I can't hire a Tory. I can't do it. You know, it's so funny. We we actually had a situation like that as well a few years ago. Um, as far as class is concerned, I honestly, number one, we can't ask. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I, that's a nice I, watch. I, I don't even, <laughs> I'm so bad at that. Like, somebody pointed out like a wedding ring on one of my colleagues that was massive, and I was like, oh my god, I haven't seen it. They're like, it's been on her freaking hand for like eight years, and I'm like, I don't know. But also, uh, she comes to work in a helicopter. <laughs> honestly like i'm i i work like i i really do i work really hard like i don't notice a lot of the nuances of kind of i should you know but i'm kind of like eh, this stuff isn't important as far as class i don't i don't really i, I don't really see class i've 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 managed to live within all of the different classes like i i mean it's very interesting how I've tipped my toe in a lot of different levels. So I don't, that's, that's interesting. And in the U S I think it's challenging for us to understand class. People don't often know the difference and you certainly can't point people out by looking at them, you know? Well, I I guess what I'm talking about is, you know, do they come from a background with no money, a little money, or, you know, quite a bit of money. That's really what I mean. I wouldn't in the US though, I think you would probably agree. It's really hard to figure that out. Like I have a lot of 
friends where we will be friends for five years. And then all of a sudden I, I figure out they have a freaking castle in Ireland. I'm like, what, what? And number one, how? And number two, why have I never been invited to your castle in Ireland? What is happening here? And this is a person who's danced on bars and, you know, driving around in a beat up freaking Subaru. And like, you know, I, I have a bunch of hotels in Nantucket. And I remember um, talking to this lovely woman and uh, she was in like dirty sneakers and beat up khakis and she had mud all over her because she was planting flowers and we just had a, we had a really lovely conversation. She was so sweet. And one of the owners of the hotel that I was working with, he's like, do you know who that is? And I'm like, no. And he's, it was the wife of one of the Google founders or something. He's like, she's a gazillionaire. And she just gave that library that she's planting all the flowers in front of like a million dollars for it to survive. And, and now she's out there planting. The, you, I feel like the U.S. is weird. There's a lot of people that look like they have money. <laughs> and they don't. And there's a lot of people that look like they don't and they do. I mean, growing up in Salem, Massachusetts, you'd be sitting next to somebody. And you wouldn't know if they're like a witch this. or not. If you're a witch or not. <laughs> right. no, but like, but they, they'd be wearing wellies, you know, and khakis and like a beat up flannel. And, you know, they would be somebody that owned 50 fishing ships where, and they were a multi-gazillionaire and they smelled like fish. You know, it's like, I was taught at a very early age, not because of money or not money, but like, you don't, don't judge anybody for what they look like. You have zero idea what's behind that. You have zero idea who they are, where they came from, what troubles they had, what successes they have. Like in Massachusetts, I think in particular, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Um, well, it's, I, it's, all, it's old waspy money and like the new tech money in San Francisco, the billionaires look like the homeless people. They're dressed yeah. the same. Well, see, yeah, they're, that's... they're wearing hoodies because that's the flex. What they're saying is I, I'm in charge. I don't have to wear a suit. I'm wearing a hoodie and, yeah. you know, dirty converse. Well, yeah, it, I, I have been in my life. I, I've never really been wealthy. Right. But I've been well off. And I've been poor, you know, I have gone up and down for 48 years with my parents, you know, up and down and uh, in my own professional career. I don't even I wouldn't even know how to describe me, but I don't come from a class. I think in the United States, I guess I maybe I probably do. Somebody else could tell me what class I'm from, but I couldn't. And, um, you know, I think in the United States, it's a little bit different. That being said, the interesting story that I was going to talk about is we we interviewed a candidate. Um, when Trump was running for office, I believe 2015, presumably 2016. Yeah. And it was very heated. You know, obviously the United States was, well, well New we York very- was melting down. People were losing their mind. Actually, they weren't in 2016. They were when he got elected. Yeah. Because everyone thought it was a joke right up to that, you know, the night. This could have been right when he got elected. And so we were interviewing a candidate and I actually, I liked her very much. She was very smart. She was very, um, I thought she was well-spoken. And uh, one of my team members came to me and said, I just found out this person is a Trump supporter. And, um, you know, I just want to let you know that if she gets hired, I will not be able to work with her. (laughs) How did your staff member find out? Did she like Google her social media or something like that? Or? It was a friend of a friend, you know, in our industry is very small. We all know everybody, you know what I mean? So, 
you know, if you're, if you interview somebody, you're probably going to do the research and find out where they came from. And if you know where they came from, which company you're going to call your friend that knew them, you want to find out who they are. I don't do that. That's illegal. <laughs> but um, my team. And nobody in Rachel's team does that either, but I their have... friends might do it. I have no clue. Ensuring Rachel has no legal liability, tell Rachel's staff. Does that totally. sound like a, I was going to be a lawyer myself. Exactly. Yes, exactly. We need like a, yes. Counselor Duff. Yeah. But you're, you would have, you would have been, it would have been better though, if you were in the UK and had to wear the wigs. The wigs are the best bit of that job. Honestly, they're really expensive. Huh? They're like a thousand pounds. <laughs> Not really. Philip, so, you know that most wigs that are decent are a thousand pounds, right? Like I'm, not I'm, at, gonna... I'm not at that stage of research yet, but thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the anyway. thing is, the ones the barristers wear look shit. They're designed to look fake. <laughs> I can only imagine how much a wig that's designed to not look fake looks good. But yeah. Well, look at the Kardashians. You yeah, know. I, I, I was actually considering becoming a barrister at one stage. I was, I was very close to doing it. But anyway, what happened? Did you hire this person? Did you not hire this person? Um, you know, I had to have a conversation with my team because this one team member told a whole bunch of other team members and then it became a thing and you know how those things spread. And I just had to tell everyone, I was like, guys, we can't, we have to judge people based on their skills and based on their merit as humans. <laughs> you know what I mean? As professionals, as, you know, are they going to contribute? Are they going to fit into our culture? We can't, I can't not hire somebody because they're a Republican. I can't not hire somebody because they're a Trump fan. No matter what we think about, like no matter what our beliefs are in that particular area, there are areas in which I will not hire somebody. But um, in that particular area, I was like, I can't not hire her. And I had to talk to everybody. And I was like, and also you're going to have to work with her <laughs> and you're going to need to find a way to find a common ground or you just make it just about work and you don't talk about politics, but this can't be something like you can't do that as a team member. And I'm going to say, as you grow and as, as you become a mentor and as you become somebody who's managing other people, you're going to find stuff out about people that you don't like for the rest of your life forever. So and what happened? What happened? Tell us, tell us, we want to know. Like, Did you hire that person? Did you not hire them? Did all your staff oh. quit? You know what? She pulled she pulled out of the running. She got a job someplace else, which made my life very easy. Um, but it was a um it was a teaching moment for me, for everyone, um, to understand legalities, to understand being an adult, being a professional. Um, you know, but yeah, I've had I have had I had somebody well, I have some crazy stories about employees that love for me, but I've stories here. Well, I had somebody who, who hired, who we hired, and on, I think it was week three, I asked her to messenger something to one of our clients. And um, she's like, oh, I'll just bring it. And I was like, okay, whatever. And uh, about an hour later, I got a call from that client and said, do you employ a so-and-so? And I was like, yeah. Is it Rachel? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, one of the Rachel. Um, no, I was like, yeah, she's actually on your team. And he's like, yeah, she can't be on my team. I have a restraining order against her. Okay. I mean, maybe she got the job as a way of getting closer. Oh my God. This individual had so many amazing references from people we know. And I was like, oh my gosh. Did you check the references? 
I did check the references. That's something people don't do in the bar business. It's amazing. I check all the references, but what I did learn, something that happens in our industry is an industry of very friendly people. And we all know, of course, we have a lot of friend friends, but we all know all of us a little bit, <laughs> you know, and um, and a lot of people will tell me very good things about people that they know nothing about. They just went out and they had a really good time having a cocktail with them. Maybe they sat next to them at a dinner, um, but they never actually worked with these individuals or they never, they don't really know them that well. And so I've had to um, take that into account when I take on clients, when I take on team members, when I take on partners, anything where I really have to do my due diligence um, and not just ask some of my very lovely friends who don't say, I, I have a lot of friends that just don't say bad things about people. <laughs> so if somebody's not good, they're not going to tell me. They're like, oh, they're great. I don't really, you know, they're wonderful. I've loved hanging out with them. They're so, it's just like, it's almost, I just have to do a, a little bit more due diligence. There's other industries where people are not as kind. I but, don't know about that. I do think it's endemic to the PR industry. And I blame it on Oprah and Ricky Lake and all that, by which I mean, decades ago, they came up with this idea of using the word issue instead of problem. Uh. Now, if you sell somebody, I have an issue with this, they know you mean problem. So you might as well say problem. Yeah. Like being direct is a kindness. It's a gift to the other person. Right. The thing about uh, references, I'm told there's legal liability in the US. Yeah. There's a brilliant Dilbert cartoon about this. And in the first frame, someone's calling up, someone in an office is calling someone else in an office. It's like, hey, I hear Dave used to work for you. He put you down as a reference. Can you give me a reference? And the guy's like, sorry, no, I can't give you a reference, but I can talk about the weather. And the third frame <laughs> is, there was a cloud that moved across the office and everyone hated it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing and, the, and uh, the other thing is about you know what you said that uh oh my god he's amazing it, it goes the other way as well people will not say things I, I guess what i'm saying is the more powerful the claim the more extraordinary the evidence should be so yeah. if somebody says this is the most amazing motherfucker in the world yeah then you've got to be like, okay, I need to see proof. I need you to show me proof. You can't just tell me. You can't just tell me that so-and-so told you. And on the other hand, if somebody says, hey, this person did insert fucked up thing, uh, <laughs> right? In well, also case, don't, yeah, don't take that at face value all the time too. Yeah, I know. It's no, low, low level stuff. If someone's like, oh, he's great fun. He, he always buys the Miller High Lifes and the shots and basic Great. Yep. You, you can't. You don't really need to interrogate that, right? So, of course. But the more extraordinary the claim, the more uh, powerful the evidence should be. So I'm going to go back to an extraordinary claim of yours. Market research. I happen to be a marketing graduate and they didn't have minors where I'm from because mm -hmm. we actually do education correctly. But if we did, my <laughs> oh. minor would have been research. Okay. Uh, I've got a friend, David Gluckman. He's the guy who invented Baileys and all that. And his point of view is that research is bollocks, right? And what he means is 
in terms of new product development and rebranding at the highest levels of the industry, at the big companies, they use research to cover their arse, not to inform them. Mm. And what happens is they're just putting out shit brands. So there's 148 brands in the world that sell more than a million nine liter equivalent cases of liquor, right? Or at least 148 million that report it voluntarily. How many of those do you think were invented in-house in the last 60 years? Are you are you, are you asking me to guess? I am. I am. All oh. of them. Three. So none of them. <laughs> so the Basically none. Of what I 2%. Said. 2%. Okay. Yeah. No, what's happened is uh, you used to have to invent brands. Then all the liquor companies went on the stock market, right? Where it's really cheap to raise money. And at the same time, the major liquor companies got, as I called, MBA-ified. They got, you know, swarmed by graduates with business degrees who made the companies very, very efficient and very, very good. Very, very good. Absolutely. But if you've got an MBA, you don't want to work in R&D, right? Because 95% of R&D budgets go down the toilet. Every now and then you hit it lucky. Back in the day, everyone knew that. You could fail and fail quickly and cheaply and move on to the next thing. Like Mm -hmm. Bailey's pretty much almost failed. It is, by the way, the most successful and lucrative liquor launch of the last 60 years. No one's created a Bailey's. The three most successful in-house products, uh, I hope I can remember all three. It's going to be embarrassing otherwise, uh, are Malibu, Woodford Reserve, and I can't remember the third one, but it's very good. Is that Bailey's? Uh, Bailey's is just outside that. I mean, I guess you can lump Bailey's in. That means there's four. So... But yeah, that's that, that's it. Those are the in-house million case brands invented by the brightest minds in the liquor industry in the last 50 odd years. Isn't that wild? It is wild. Um, but and I it's do- because of research. Yeah, but that's just <laughs> honestly, I think it's very um, it's a very short sighted view at research. You can use any data any way you want. It's you can you can use it to cover your ass. You can use it in a bad way. You can use it to back up claims um, that you can you can basically you can ch- not change the math, but you can highlight certain math that backups that backs up a claim that you want mm-hmm. and, and just not show any of the other things. Um, but I think when used well. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think decisions, 100% of decisions should be made based on research, but I think they, it, the decisions should be made and informed by research. I love data. I love research. I think it's fascinating. I mean, even things, even kind of looking at trends and looking at kind of creative ideation, it's research. It might be qualitative research, but it's still research it's still data how things happen you know what i mean like all of the trends that have happened have happened because a certain number of people all did x because of y you know what i mean and that's data and research you know if you if you know the right questions to ask and if you know the right kind of cross tabs <laughs> to analyze and to find your you know significant differences within that then you you can do something it's there's a lot of there's a lot of things behind it i mean 
when I was working at, I was working at a company called Knowledge Networks that was a market research company and I was a data anal- analyst. And um, the the company that I worked for was brilliant. Oh my God, they were so smart. We I did a diary study with uh, Microsoft. Uh, Bill Gates joined one of the phone calls. I think I was 20, how old was I? 25, 26? You are the second person on this podcast who've interacted with Bill Gates. Uh, for For a hot second, uh, he, he did, he did tell me I did a good job, which was great. Uh, <laughs> which was really, uh, like, I think I, yeah, anyway, it was, it was, it was very scary and very exciting. Um, but we did Coca-Cola, Hewlett Packard, you know, Microsoft Enron, which was any, but I'm dating myself, but we did a whole bunch of things. But one of the things that we did is we did a segmentation analysis for American Express. And American Express was having a really, really hard time um, like getting consumers to use their credit card. It was a it was very much a business used credit card. And so we did a segmentation analysis where we segmented the population into different groups. Like you could have like um, you know, negative Nellies and you know, motherly Mollies, and you basically segment into different personalities with, that you've interviewed. And, but what they found was that a lot of people, like they weren't, they needed to see um, American Express being used in real world situations. They needed to see it being used at the gas station. They didn't know it could be used at a gas station. They didn't know it could be used at a grocery store. They didn't know it could be used here. And then what we deciphered is that a lot of these people, the majority of the people that would be consumers of American Express and use it in these places we're also very celebrity driven. So our recommendation to American Express, and granted, I was a peanut. This wasn't me. These were the big wigs on the team. I was a, you know, I was a fly on the wall crunching some data in the background, but it was fascinating to watch this. But um they the 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 report that we provided said that um, what we would recommend is showing American Express used in real world situa- situations. And we would recommend using a celebrity such as, and we gave them kind of like five different celebrities that would fit the uh, demographic of who these people were. And six months later, or a year later, maybe, I forget how long it was, um, I was watching my television only to see Jerry Seinfeld uh, swiping his American Express at the grocery store swiping his American Express at a gas station, swiping it at a pet store, you know, and um, that was research that worked. It was fascinating to see, you know, qualitative and quantitative data being taken, analyzed, providing a report to a company who gave the report to an advertising agency who created something that worked. It was fascinating. I love that, you know, and, um, you know, now you look at pharmaceutical companies and pharmaceutical companies. Um, I have a lot of friends that work in um, big pharma in market research that friends that I have um, that I used to work with. And yeah, they're like, oh, it just sucks when like we're only able to present this part of the data <laughs> and we don't present this part of the data. You know, it's why don't they present the other part? Is it just not the nice part that people want to hear or? Honestly, I don't even know. I think it was just a conundrum that one of my acquaintances was having over a cocktail and I read between the lines and I don't really have any other data there as to what, but I can pretty much figure out what she was talking about. And, um, and I thought that was fascinating, you know, just 
knowing that in some instances you can use research to push your own agenda. Oh, no, you always can. But I mean, to zoom out, I don't know if you saw this, like just before the pandemic, like maybe 2018 or 2019, uh, one of the biggest advertisers in the world is either Procter & Gamble or Unilever, but I think it was Unilever. They actually pulled all their advertising globally. Everything, every penny. And sales went up. (laughs) You know, um, a bit of a shock doctrine, but enough enough of this deep dive into our ancient past. It's time to talk about the sexy stuff like bars and liquor. Oh, yeah. All right. Good. Yeah, baby. (laughs) Let's do that. I've been actually formulating this question, which came to me uh, yesterday when I was walking to the gym. Oh, I love that you were like you had a, you you formulated a question while you were thinking about this interview. This is literally the only question I've prepared for the whole interview, okay. and it's one more <laughs> than I normally do. Oh, sweet! All right, I'm in. Yeah, suck it to me. So, uh, I'm going to ask it in two parts. This is the first part because you know most of the people who listen here are in the bar. You are at the top of the tree. You might be sharing the branches with a few other people. But you're at the top of the tree when it comes to PR for bars that want to be famous, or at least want to be famous in a certain way, awards, lists, that kind of thing. Right? Yeah. I like the way you don't like fight me on that. Like, meh. Sure. Lovely. Well, well, I, I, I have, I have, an an, I have an answer for it. I, I think it's, I, I it's honestly, a question. I, think, I haven't asked a question yet. I think it's kind of silly what you've just said, but I also agree with it. No, no, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why, but it's fine. I didn't ask you. The question's coming now. Okay. (laughs) Now, the question is, what are the most common misconceptions about PR by bars that have ambitions to make it to those awards and lists? What are the things that they think about your job that are wrong? Like everything. My mother doesn't even know what I do. Nobody, nobody gets it. You know what I mean? Nobody understands what our role is and what we can do for you. And also when you hire a publicist, you have to do more work. <laughs> like your life doesn't get easier. I'll break this down. Beautiful. Love that. So when you hire a PR person, like there's a lot of people that think that we're just magic is going to happen. Your world is going to change. And, um, you know, all of a sudden we're going to make you famous. We're just, we, we wave our wand and get we your talk, tux, get your tux ready for world's 50 best. We talk to a bunch of media, you know, we tell them how amazing you are. And because somehow, because Rachel Harrison said that, well, the media is obviously going to listen. There is nothing further from the truth. And one of the, one of the reasons why the media listens to me at all is I think I've developed a reputation for being brutally honest and even about my clients at times. I have a client that um, has hit uh, number one on the lists and, you know, but I remember, I remember when we were getting them up, up to, I remember when we were promoting them their food wasn't very good. Their cocktails were amazing and their food wasn't very good. And I remember talking to a lot of the media. I was like, no, 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 just go for drinks. <laughs> just go for drinks. We haven't quite gotten there on our food yet. You know what I mean? But like, 
the drinks are out of this world. The drinks are creative and amazing and fun. And it is, it's just a scene, you know, and it's just a ray of sunshine and you're going to go and you're just going to have so much fun. Don't eat the food, (laughs) you know, like the media, the media know that I'm going to tell them the truth. Um, Now we, we all, we all talked about hiding data pulling out what's important and all of that. Um, As a publicist, what I do sometimes is, yes, I will, I will highlight the amazing things. And there are some things that are not amazing that I just got pushed under the rug and I don't talk about at all. You know what I mean? So sometimes it is a little bit about shiny, 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 look up here, look up here, you know, always the truth. All I do not lie. I do not spin. I, it 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 makes me so effing angry when people be like, "Oh, just spin it," or "Oh, you're a spin person." I'm like, I don't spin. That is dumb. I am not a political publicist. I'm in food and beverage and hotels. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, there's no need to lie. There are wonderful stories, and there are wonderful things that we can pull out of any client that I work with. And all we have to do is tell those stories and pull those things out and highlight those things. So, okay, those are, those are a few of things, but here's the most important thing. Hiring me is not going to put you on the list. Just hiring me, like hiring my team. It's not going to put you on the list. Not any of the, what if you hired all the Rachels that work for you, plus you, all five Rachels? No? Never, you're never going to make. What if we added Connor and Andrew? Would that uh, work? They're really, they're really good. They're on the digital team, but <laughs> by just by merely hiring RHC, Rachel Harrison Communications, you are not going to make the list. And the reason behind that is because we are one part. We are one part of what helps you get there, and there are a lot of other parts that really need to be in existence in the highest caliber that also have to be there in order for us to succeed. And I talked to a lot of my clients about, we need to do this together as a family and everything needs to work. Your hospitality needs to be on par. Your cocktails really need to be kick-ass. You know, you the ambiance, the the world that the consumer experiences when they're in your space needs to be amazing. I'm never going to be able to take a shitty place. You could pay me $20 million a month and I will never be able to take a shitty place and get it on that list. It's not going to happen. But there are are lots of very good bars that are not on any list. Well, that is probably because they don't have a publicist. <laughs> well, mean, that's what I mean. There's there's lots of bars that are really good that could yeah. be on a list or win an award. I think we're talking about a general, you know, universe. It, well, that's kind of the reverse. I, I think, you know, so there's two ways to look at this. Number one, like by hiring me is not automatically going to get you on the list. No matter how much you pay me, no matter how much work I put in it, no matter how much I care. It has to be all, all of the parts need to be working in unison. And the client also needs to be creative, also needs to work hard, also needs to hustle, 
also needs to be in the rooms that are important. That's just part of the game. It is what it is. And yeah, you have to have a good publicist, a good team. Um, I would say, yes, there are a lot of bars um, that are that very well could be on the list and they're not because they don't have somebody uh, with the microphone talking about how amazing they are. It's, there are though, if, if though, yes, we're very expensive. PR is expensive. I get it. So but are cocktails. So, well, yeah, I know, you know, I know the margins. I know, I, I know how much bars make and how much restaurants make. I know how much hotels make. I know the margins and all of the different things. I get it. You know, I know the difference between unions and non-unions and everything. And like, I, I can basically say exactly how much something should cost. I would say, you know, that comp hotel room isn't a comp hotel room because you have to pay the housekeeper, you have to pay taxes, you have to pay X, Y, and Z. Like when, when you ask me about numbers in hospitality, I know the numbers, you know what I mean? Like I get it, but I understand for a for a bar that fits 50 people and is busy on a Wednesday through Sunday in Minneapolis. Um, Great town, by uh, the way. I love Minneapolis. Five oh, to $10,000 yeah. Yeah, $10, a month is a lot of money to spend. You yes. know what I mean? It really is. I get it. Um, well, okay, so, let me jump in right there. If there was a well, Freaky Friday situation and I wave my wand and you wound up owning one of those bars. Yeah. But knowing what you know, what would you do well, if that's you what couldn't I mean. if you couldn't afford to hire an agency, right? What would you do? Well, that's what I was going to say. A lot of these bars can do is they can represent themselves. Thank you. And you know, and frankly, I would give anybody out there advice for free, <laughs> and I and I give everybody advice for free. I did it today twice. <laughs> you know, I have calls. I probably have one or two calls a day where somebody's, you know, just asking me how to do something or how I would do something. And I think most of us, PR people in general, if you're good and if you're passionate and you care, we do this because we love, we love building things. We love being a part of it. We love, we love small business. You know, we love the people involved and we want, we really want to be a part of the success. It's not some, not, Yes, in some ways we're opportunists for a number of different reasons. But as humans, I think good publicists do this because we're not opportunists. It's because we care. There's if I was nothing wrong with opportunism, well, yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a half half. But like, if I had a billion dollars, I'd be doing this job still, and I'd be doing it for free for all of the people that I love because I love this and I love being a part of helping somebody achieve the success that they've dreamed of. I love that. So I'm just saying this right now, anybody can call me and I will give them 10 or 15 minutes and give them a few tips on how to do this. But Rachel, you can reach the greatest single audience of your career around the globe <laughs> right now for Here? free on the Philip Duff the Philip? show. Well, we have up to 12 downloads per show. Well, Philip. Right? So this right? is your opportunity. If there could be one thing that a bar could do for themselves a 50 seat bar you know they're just getting by and they just want to do a bit more what would be the one thing the very first thing that somebody of your lofty knowledge would advise them to do research five 
outlets that you would like to see yourself in. Um, read I'm about a bar here, by the way. Yeah, five outlets. Sure, okay, right, outlets right, are digital. Ahead. You know, digital. Ah, okay, um, right. You know, online publications, whatever you want to research. Just five. I would say start with five places that you would like to see your bar listed in. Is it Eater LA? Is it Thrillist? Is it New York Times? Is it Wall Street Journal? You know, is it Vogue? Where do you want to be? Be realistic. You know, you're not, you're not going to get a full feature in GQ. It's not going to happen, you know, (laughs) but, um, you know, um, find five outlets and then read those outlets and figure out where you want to be. What makes sense? Who writes the articles that you can see yourself in, study those writers and then make friends with them. You know, like it, find the places they're going to be or send them an email and tell them that you like their work because you do. It's not a lie. And people really like to get emails telling them that you like their work. <laughs> Who doesn't like that? It's really, you know, it's pretty easy. Um, everybody likes to have their ass kissed. It's kind of like, you know, um, but, um, and then number two, figure out who you are. What is your bar? What is your bar? Is it what concept? What is your, why are your cocktails the way they are? Why are you doing what you're doing? And put pen to paper. And even if you're not the best writer in the world, just put pen to paper and write it all down. You know, just just write a stream of consciousness. Write down who you are why you're special, why you're unique, and why you think you're different than everybody else. What are you doing that nobody else is doing? Or what are you doing that's better than everybody else? Um, And sometimes what you're doing that's better than everybody else is being shittier than everybody else. Maybe you are the shittiest dive bar in the entire world, and it's hilarious, and it's the place you want to go you know, where there's peanuts, you know, on the floor and there's sawdust and, you know. Shout the, out to Palmer House. In yeah, to- <laughs> right. Like the barmaid's an asshole, you know, and it's amazing and everybody loves it. You know, what are you doing that's better than everybody else? And again, sometimes being better is being shitty. Um, but put pen to paper and then you've made friends with these writers, these five writers that you love and you respect and you read you figured out kind of who you are. Well, put those two things together. Tell the writers who you are, <laughs> you know, and then build it from there. Build a repertoire, build a relationship, build a friendship, maybe invite them in, you know, to check it out and um, and kind of go from there. I mean, like it, 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 PR is work. Um, yes, there's a skill. And yes, I've done it for a long time. So I can do something in five minutes that's going to take somebody else two hours. But that's also why you pay me because most people don't have the time to do that. Most people, if given enough time, could figure out how to do it. Um, That's not, you know, I mean, but most people don't have the time. And that's why they're going to pay me and my team to come up with creative ideas and to build relationships and to tell these wonderful stories. And to talk about how incredible the staff is and the designers and the bartenders and the glassware makers and, you know, all of the different elements to a bar 
um, you know, we do the work, we go in and we ask questions and we interview staff and we observe, you know, we do all that work and it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of awareness and it takes a lot of knowledge of trends and stuff and understanding what's exciting today because it changes every day. But we know, because we talk with journalists every day, we know what people are excited about today. And so, you know, it's, you hire a PR person because this is what we do every single day. And you can do it. It just takes time. You know, you have to, you have to want to do it. You have to take the time to do it, but it's not impossible to do it on your own either. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a cost that people don't build in. Like if you even have a little place, you're going to spend 50 grand just equipping the kitchen. You know, it's going to be another 20 grand at least for the bar. Like, okay, we've got to pay somebody to do the toilets and all that. And then we have to pay the staff. But if you simply built in the cost of PR, even for an initial, you know, five or six months, this this is the thing because there is limited time. It's not like you only get one chance to make an impression. But you don't get more than two, I feel. Yeah, agreed. I, I would agree. After two, you should change the name of the concept and, try, and start over again with everything you've learned. Um, I, I will I will talk money, though, um, straight out. I would say we, we charge a little bit more than this, um, sometimes a lot more than this, depending on what the scope is. But if you're going to put your budget together at an absolute minimum, don't pay your PR person less than $5,000 a month. If you have somebody that's going to like that's going to do it for under $5,000 a month, it, number 1, it's it's just it's a disservice to them and the amount of work that they do. It's a lot of work, but number 2, you're just not going to get the quality or the time. Put $5,000 a month away um for PR and it's worth it. Um at a minimum there's most PR agencies are charging more than that, but there's some smaller, great, wonderful PR professionals um, who, you know, will start at 5K. Um, some will say they'll start at 35K, but really they deserve five. And at 35, you're not really, I'm just telling you, don't pay under five, <laughs> you know. Um, and for but, people who don't know, right, yeah. at, a, at a basic level, somebody good charging five, what could you expect Right, knowing nothing about the industry, you in, well PR industry. I mean, hopefully, um, it's it's tough. It's tough to say what you could expect because, again, this is qualitative. This isn't quantitative, right? But assuming so, you've got somebody, as you said, somebody good, you know, and they're charging you five grand, and and you're doing your best. They know their stuff. You don't know about PR at all. All you know about is bars. Yeah. Well, your PR team the first month is going to do a lot of research. They're going to interview you. They're going to take a lot of your time, you know, they're going to, they're, and then they're going to tell you how you're going to need to spend a lot more money in order to give them the assets that they need. You're going to have to get great photos. Uh, we're going to need all the menus. Um, also, you're going to need to put a budget together for comping um, visitors, media influencers, uh, all the other people that contribute to everything that we care so deeply about, which is media outlets slash awards and everything. Um, but I would say, I don't know, for $5,000 a month and you're a great place, 
You should be able to see some press off the bat within a minimum of two months uh, online. Um, long lead will take a minimum of six months to see anything in print. But um, so hiring your PR person for six months, uh, you you really lose a little bit <laughs> because you're the the lead times of a lot of publications and newspapers is long. Right. So, yeah. So um, I would say a year minimum would be worth it. And um, yeah, it's just it's so interesting. It's there's a lot of people who start who hire PR person people for their first time, and they're so disappointed. <laughs> you know, it's like they're so disappointed that you know. The PR person started on October 1st and by October 15th, we didn't have, you know, 10 pieces of coverage and our covers didn't double. It's like, what, what, what did you think was going to happen? Like, we're not magicians, you know, it's, we have a job and we have to do research and we have to do the work. We have to put in the work as well. Like this isn't, we're not turning on a light switch. You're not paying money to get butts in seats. If you're going to do that, just hand $20 to everybody that walks past your bar and have them sit down. You'll get more customers that way. You know, pay your $5,000 in advertising and get automatic coverage. You know, you'll know what you're getting. Um, you know, it's it's just, it's 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 tough. It's a, it's, it's a tough profession because as a client, you are, you're paying money um, and you are not guaranteed an outcome. And that hurts. It's really, really hard. Um, and you have to trust the um, the PR team that you're working with, that they are going to try their hardest um, to do everything they can to help you achieve success. Um, and sometimes, sometimes that PR team is going to pull out everything in their rabbit hat. They're going to pull everything out of their Mary Poppins bag um, and nothing's going to happen because for some reason, no one cares. And we thought they were going to care because we do. And for some reason, nobody cares. And sometimes nobody cares because you're in the middle of an election <laughs> between Trump and Biden. Sometimes nobody cares because there's a war going on. Sometimes, you know, nobody cares for X, Y, and Z. And sometimes nobody cares because your concept just isn't that good. You know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors involved in, um, God, I'm not really, you, it's so funny. I, I would love to come on this show and just say, we succeed every time and we're amazing. And, you know, we get the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and Vogue and, and, you know, sometimes we do. You know, sometimes we get some of those. And and honestly, I would say nine, 90% of the time, we are incredibly proud of what we do. I would say 10% of the time, we work our ass off and it just doesn't stick. And it sucks. And it hurts us as much as it hurts the clients. It really does. We are incredibly affected and we are incredibly like, oh God, just so sad and so depressed. And so why didn't this work? We put so much work into it and it just didn't stick. Why? You know, I have had team members cry because they worked their asses off and they just couldn't achieve success for a client. Was it Andrew? It was one of the guys. <laughs> it, was, it was obviously one of the men. It was one, it was one of the men. Yeah, they're not tough. Well, I, I think know, Winston Churchill 
Winston Churchill said that um, the secret to success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. I 100% agree. And hospitality is one of those things. Like I create a lot of brands for people these days and many of them are fairly new to the business. And I have to say, look, you get the greatest geniuses in the world together, Harvard MBAs and this and that. And they do, they they pay $100,000 for a search and they do this and they do that. And the brand fails. Yeah. As, as I like to say, has anyone seen a bottle of Tory vodka around lately? <laughs> or Absolute Elix, for that matter. I don't understand you know? <laughs> why anybody hires anybody with MBAs in this field ever. It's so weird. Like, I, I, I would. I mean, it's a good, it's a good degree. It's. Uh, I think it's being used wrongly. Originally, the idea was that it would be something you did in your late 30s or 40s if you had gone to work for a company, maybe not even having a degree at all. If they paid and, for it. Well, no, it wasn't that at all. Um, it, you know, you worked your way up, a lot of technical companies actually, and, and you you became an excellent, you know, everything. But to take the next step where you might actually get in the executive suite or on the board, you needed to have some kind of a degree. So in a way, an MBA was a conversion course. It was one, two yeah. years you got the degree, you already had the skills, maybe you added a bit more, you learned how to read a, an Excel P&L or something like that. But now, <laughs> since the late 80s, yeah. you, do, you do your MBA at the ripe age of 22 when you've never worked a day in your life, and then you go in to work in your first job and you're telling people twice your age how to do their job. Like there was even a TV series about it with... Um, Don Cheadle. Did you ever see that one? I think I did. Was um they okay. played like management consultants, you know, like yes, McKinsey yes, yes. or something. I forget it wasn't called Suits, it was called something else. <laughs> but that's I, the only I, problem I, with it. And it, it's listen, it's a good degree, it's a good policy, but you need to be informed by real world expertise. And you also need to take gambles. Without gambles, Diageo would not be where it is now. Paul Walsh. The former CEO before the late Ive Menezes gambled on premium liquor 14 years ago. The stock market fucked him. The stock price tanked. Everybody hated him for 12 years. And yeah. now Diageo is worth more than it ever has been in its history because they they gambled on premium liquor. In my industry, I would never hire anybody with a master's. Um, and literally I will throw that resume in the garbage because you wasted all of that time getting a degree when you're, when all of that time should have been used building relationships and learning the craft. Our public relations is not, it's not about MBA. I, I actually, I do, I do have one team member who is, who has an MBA who is absolutely incredible and she's amazing and organized and professional and all of those things, but she's applying for other jobs right now. Cause she's listening <laughs> to the show. She's like, fuck. I, I love her. We're going to get promoted. I, I Allison, Allison, we hear you. I didn't, I didn't know, but getting a, getting a master's in, getting a an MBA is different than getting a master's in public relations. I'm like a master's in public relations. Like that's not a thing. You know what I mean? Getting an MBA is completely different. And 
you know, teaches you a number of things, you know, an entrepreneurial spirit and, you know, market research and like all of like how to run a business. And, you know, so some people that have an MBA come into my company and they understand what I'm doing, which is wonderful. And so why I might do X or Y or Z or say no to this or yes to this. And that's wonderful. And so it, it, it leaders there, uh, I, I understand, but getting your master's in public relations, your resume will go right in the trash. In fact, majoring in public relations um, I will think twice about. Do you think people should study something else? Because I remember having a drink with young David Wondrich, another man who switched careers, if you will. And he said, you know, Phil, there didn't used to be degrees in journalism. Yeah. You were just somebody who knew boxers and prostitutes and mayors and bartenders and governors and poets mm. and you you know every now and then you'd sober up enough to to write <laughs> right and like you you're like journalism is a, a bit of discipline obviously it's a bit of discipline but it's also art yeah and there you you can learn stuff you learn the guardrails of art at a school right but the art is everything else it's who you are and what you drink and where you travel to but don't you think that writing Writing was a very class-based profession. I mean... Oh, writing, now more than ever. I actually think before more than now. I mean, now I, it's it's changed significantly because now the writers get paid absolutely nothing. But they got paid nothing before. I mean, Hemingway came from money. All of these people came from... And all of the writers, like, um, oh my God... Uh, Bright Lights, Big City, Jay, Jay McInerney, right? I mean, like these these were people, and I, I actually don't know his background, but it's, you know, the the character that he wrote about was a writer um, who came from a very wealthy background and, you know, was doing all these drugs and living in the city and just did it. And to be honest, a lot of the writers that, um, a lot of the writers that I know were able to be writers because of the same reason why PR people are PR people. It's, you know, there was a certain level of subsidy. Not, not all of them. I think you could, you could get a break as a novelist. Like, I was a huge fan of P.J. O'Rourke. I still am. It's just he's dead now. Yeah. Um, you know, and he didn't come for money. And uh, I always remember, it's, I never watched Sex in the City. I just wound up marrying one of the people from it in the guise <laughs> of Mrs. Duff. But there was one scene, I have actually seen the scene, where the Carrie Bradshaw, who was, you know, nominally a journalist, was arguing with her editor because her editor was trying to bargain her down from $4.50 a word. Oh, my God. Do you remember when the New York Times used to pay four fifty a word? Oh, my heavens. A year or two ago, uh, in the space of a few months, I was interviewed by the two major newspapers in Ireland, the Irish Times and the Irish Independent. Yeah. And one of the journalists who interviewed me before we interviewed, we were just chatting away, talking about drinks, journalism and stuff like that. And I mentioned an article from our mutual friend, Robert Simonson. Shout out to Robert. And he had said in this article, you shouldn't work for less than a dollar a word, which is already quite a climb down. Yeah. And I mentioned this to this journalist in Ireland. She was like, oh, my God, I'd kill to make a dollar a word. <laughs> like there is, I, I think maybe it's just because we can see inside the sausage factory, right? I think it's worse now than it's ever been. I've written, I used to have regular columns, Australian Bartender Magazine, Drinks International. 
And what they paid you was hilarious. Yeah. In the sense that it wouldn't cover the cost of an appetizer at Applebee's. Yeah. Right. For 500 words, which is, you know, well, quite. You know what? It's very interesting. So some of our clients, um, so we, we counsel a lot of our clients, but this was, this was probably back in 2016 or 17. And um, we, we, we were sending in media to try our client's bar slash restaurant. And um, the media uh, weren't leaving tips. They were trying out all of the food uh, and drinks. This was a bar. It was mostly drinks. Um, it was a high-end bar, one of the bars that made the list. They were trying. And um, the journalists, many journalists we sent in, because that's our job, and they were leaving without paying tips. And our client called us furious. And I was like, guys, like the tips kind of need to be part of what you guys pay. You know, it's, that's kind of part of, that's part of the equation. And they were like, you know, you know, here they are trying our drinks and our food and for free. And, you know, I go, but they're also doing you a service and they're there to try you in an exchange, potentially if they like what they tasted to write an article, never guaranteed, of course, or an inclusion. Right. And I had to explain to them, I was like, writers don't, writers aren't millionaires. And a lot of our writers that we send in are also freelance. And they're maybe potentially trying out three bars or restaurants in a night, which means let's say that's $20 a tip in each bar. That's $60 that they're paying a night to go try out all of these different places where hopefully people will be included in stories. It's a lot of money when you might make $50 an article. I mean, maybe. And it's like, so you're already in the red. You've been to three places that you're trying out to hopefully include in one article. So that cost you, if you were tipping, that would have cost you 60 bucks and you're only going to get paid $50 for the article. I mean, it's no matter what it is, the writers, sure, is it lovely if they tip? And if they're on staff and an editorial, you know, if they're on staff at TNL or Which so, almost or, nobody is. Yeah. Which, <laughs> may, well, maybe they have a budget. Maybe they don't. You know what I mean? Like, who knows what's happening? But the the truth of the matter is writers aren't making a gazillion dollars. They're not these multi-gazillionaires. And if they're going to come in and if they're going to try your bar, or your restaurant or your hotel, sure. Would it be nice that they tipped? Absolutely. Can they can they really afford to go around like spending $500 a week because they're doing their job? Like they're paying you so that they can do their job. <laughs> it just, I had to explain this to a client who did not take it very well, actually, um, and then decided to let me have it. <laughs> I was like, all right, cool. It, go, it goes both ways. I remember um, when I was writing a, uh, a column for an extremely large trade industry magazine. And they were a bit different. In other magazines like Australian Bartender, Imbibe, uh, Class, I could write whatever the fuck I liked, which is nice, but it's also quite difficult, actually. You have yeah. to come up with a topic. Well, this one, they would say, hey, Phil, can you write an article on Amaretto? And we'd like you to interview this person, this person, this person, because, of course, the advertising sales we're going to hound them. Sure. Right. And I didn't have to include them. Uh, they weren't paying me enough to fire me anyway. 
<laughs> but it was a lot more work for me to have to call these people. And it was always like, they weren't shitty brands, but they weren't brands that it would have occurred to me to interview anyway. They were yeah. neither the established ones or the interesting insurgents. They were just like, eh, you know, it was like the tofu brands. At <laughs> one time, but, it, but here's the thing. You always want to help the up-and-coming people who are doing it right. Whether it's the world's best Geneva, I'm pointing at myself here, or somebody making amazing mezcal. I just showed our friend Andrew Bernauer around New York City to every fucking amazing bar there. He's got a great Ricea El Viaje. Yeah. Have you got any? Did he send you any, by the way? No. Um, but I We'll meet up and we'll drink some because I've got it and it's fucking great. Yeah, it's I love so Ricea. Good. It would make, it would make a... Bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. But anyway. You and I in a cab on the way back from. The Michter's party during yes, yes, Bar yes, yes. Convent, Brooklyn to Brooklyn yeah. itself. When I just completely like vomited. Like I was like, I love, I, not real vomited, verbally vomited my love of Ricea and just talked your ear off about how much I love it. Well, you were talking to the right person. I am the Ricea <laughs> whisperer. But anyway, back to my story. Sorry. Yeah, it might be a female-dominated company on your end, but we have equality <laughs> here on the film. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna <laughs> female explain you, Mister Duff. Yeah. Ooh, well played. No, so <laughs> I'm writing an article on a category, and there's somebody you and I both know, and he's got a great little brand in that category. Yeah. Right. And I, and I look it up. I don't have his phone number. I send him a Facebook message. It's like, hey, man. I really want to uh, get like a couple of photos from you for the article. Cause that's the other fucking thing. There's no photographers anymore. You're supposed to write the fucking thing and provide photos for less than the minimum wage at a McDonald's in Azerbaijan. So I'm like, Hey buddy, I need uh, I need this and that and a bit of things. And his reply was, Oh mate, can you just like forward this to my email? Oh my God. Stop. Instead. No, he really said it. He really said that. You're like, and or I, I could I just could go to somebody else. That's cool. Don't worry about it. Yeah, don't oh, worry no. about it. Oh, no, it gets better. It gets better. <laughs> I did not have time to be fucking around with this because, again, I'm being paid. Fuck all for this. I like writing. I'm an amazing yeah. writer. I wish writing paid better. I would do it full time, like teaching or punching idiots, right? But <laughs> I wrote the article, yeah. and I included his brand anyway, right? Very nice. This guy. It. Because the brand is good. Quite apart, you, you've got to separate the person from the brand, right? Otherwise, <laughs> you've never watched Shakespeare in Love again because Harvey Weinstein produced it. Well, fair. So, of course, I've never watched it again. And I don't even know if I've watched any Harvey Weinstein ever again. I do not separate the people from the brands, but that's a whole different, that's a whole different podcast. The last Tarantino you saw? I, what, 10 years ago? I don't know. Harvey. No, I mean, hey. Doesn't exist without Harvey. So anyway. I haven't watched I haven't watched a Tarantino or you watched like, it ten years I, ago. I haven't even watched Goodwill Hunting. I haven't watched any like okay. So I don't watch any movie more than once. Okay, I'm done. Finish your story. No, I don't either, to be honest. So anyway, no, no, it gets better, right? So I write this article and it's published in a large trade magazine that everybody at the highest levels of the industry reads. There's a couple of photos in there. And he finally replies again, 
see like a face when she's like and he fucking oh i see you didn't fucking have the balls to include our brands da 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 and i just replied to him and said you didn't turn the fucking page did you oh what a moron <laughs> this is somebody who you know for his brand it's a great brand yeah it's not as good as old Geneva is for the Geneva category. Obviously. It's pretty fucking good in Obviously. this category. <laughs> right? And I'm like, come on. Maybe everybody has to do an internship. Your interns or your staff should yeah. intern for a week in a bar. The bartender should intern with you. Mm. Right? Then everybody rotates to work with me for a week. <laughs> right? And then they... Clean the toilets in a distillery. This is totally. how it is. This, this well, is the Duff Harrison MBA of the industry. I will this, tell you. This could be a thing. This if a somebody, thing. I will tell you, if somebody has worked at a bar or a restaurant, like a service industry where they've had to wait on humans. Or an escort agency. <laughs> hey, it's, 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 it's customer service. We'll, we'll we'll just like breeze past that comment, but uh, but we I will hire somebody like if 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 all else is equal and they have waited tables or bartendered or bust or you know what I mean I will I will hire them I I waited tables for a decade uh, in between that I bartended but my bartending was like that's a whole other story but um you know but like it, learning like I remember having this i loved waiting tables so effing much i fucking loved it so much and if i if it could have paid me the amount of money that i wanted to make in my life and the life that i wanted to live i would have waited tables forever i fucking what did you like about it the most if you had to oh pick God. one thing i loved having a really grouchy table come in like a husband and wife who obviously fucking hate each other. And, you know, and somehow like, like changing their experience. And so by the end of their meal, they're laughing and giggling and they like you, maybe they like each other <laughs> a little bit more. And then of course they tip you 25%, you know what I mean? But, um, but I just loved the challenge of, trying to make everybody have kind of the best experience that they've ever had. And not, you know, it's not by being a, a massive part of their experience, but somehow finding a way to make it funny or pleasurable, or I don't know. It was, it was so interesting. I remember studying um, parts of human behavior that, you know, uh, people would say you would get a better tip if like you look at them in the eyes or you put your hand on their shoulder or you laugh or all that stuff. And I studied all that stuff because I thought it was funny and hilarious. And I wanted to make more money, obviously. But um, but I also did it because it was fun and it worked. You know, like people like that. You know, people it's it's really fun when you can when you're waiting tables or you're bartending and you're just you're feeling this vibe of like, you're part of it, you know, you're part of humanity. You're part of the service industry. You're part of just enjoying all of it. And I liked that. And the second thing I liked was I loved so much when, you know, I think my section, I had seven tables and 
you know, and somebody else would be struggling and which we all did. I, I was struggling often too. And somebody's like, I'm in the weeds. Can you take table 12 and 13? So I would have, you know, nine or 10 tables. And I was just freaking spinning plates, <laughs> spinning plates. I was like, you know, I was remembering the ketchups and I was remembering the cocktail sauce and I was remembering to drop the soups and the salads and all the things. And like everything was happening. Right. And I was like on a roll and I'm like, fuck. Yeah. I just, I just, you're in a flow state. Pressure oh, makes it. diamonds. It was, wait, say that one more time. Pressure makes diamonds. I, well, I love pressure. I feel like, oh, sometimes I need to put like more pressure on my team. I try to be like, like I get so nervous when they're so overwhelmed and I'm like, okay, like, like let, let's alleviate some pressure, like pressure. And I'm like, maybe if I just allow them to feel it a little bit more, maybe if I actually, instead of pulling back, gave them another client on top of it, um, they would like level up. They would learn how to handle it. They would maybe manage their time better. I'm not saying they don't. I think they're wonderful at what they do. And I've tried to, I've tried to kind of be a leader a little bit more through kindness as opposed to fear. But sometimes I'm like, you know, would it be better if I was a like a little bit more like, hey, you know what? Here's another client. Succeed or don't, you know, figure it out. Like just gave them a little bit more. You know, um, Piccolo Machiavelli's statement on that topic. Uh, is it better to be fear or loved? That's the first half. Do you know the last yeah. half? Uh, maybe. No, a lot of people don't. He said it is better to be feared than loved, but you should not be hated. I think that I've introduces got that. a degree of context there that's important. I might have a little bit of that. I don't understand why, but I have been told that I am a little scary. You are. <laughs> I mean, not to me, no. a man, but like... Of oh, I'm you sorry. You, Would, you think men aren't afraid of me? Uh, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm an Irish one. <laughs> no, but... It, <laughs> You are, of course you are. And and do you know what it is? A lot of it is, is just as you get older. Well, no, it's not just that. It's not just age. It's experience. You can get a lot of experience at a young age. I did. Or you can take a long time to get to a level of experience. But at whatever time you get to experience, you get to a point where you're like, okay, we're not fucking around here anymore. Yeah. It's, well, you that's know, I'm, I'm giving it to you straight. This is it. And that's, for that person, but it's also for yourself. Well, we don't have time for the bullshit. And honestly, you're right. Like what you said before, you were like, it's there's a degree of kindness towards being direct and towards being honest. And there really is. And you know, I was my mother, um, <laughs> I gave her a gift for Christmas or something like that, and she gave it away. <laughs> and I was pissed. What was this as a Hitachi one vibrator? I think wait, what? That was, what, was it, it Irish? Was it a Hitachi one vibrator? Oh, no, no, absolutely not. No, she would have kept that. Yeah. No, my mother, my mother is <laughs> totally fine in that. She's, anyway, I'm not going to discuss my mother in those situations. But anyway, but I, I think I gave her like, this was years ago. I gave her like an espresso maker or something. And right. I don't know what happened. She couldn't figure not it out. Not as good as a Breville. Not as good as a Breville. Fair, fair point. It was before we represented Breville. Shout out to Breville, everyone who's listening. I okay. do love me some Breville. We do um, know that the corporate office tunes into this show. 
Well, she gave it away. And I, um, I don't know, the other day I was having a conversation with her and I was talking about, she gives away a lot of the presents that people give her and she gives them to just random people. And then people find out and I'm like, mom, why can't you just be honest with these people about the fact that you like, you don't like the gifts that you've given them and you don't have to say it in a mean way. I don't like this or whatever. You can say this ugly sweater that you just gave me, right? you know what? This isn't really my style. Would you mind if I exchanged it for something that is more my style? And you know, the human being that gave it to you might for a split second be like, oh, I wish I got it better. Damn it. But you know what? Number one, the person that gave you that gift has learned a lesson not to get you a similar gift. (laughs) They've learned a little bit about you and maybe they'll get it right next time, number one. And number two, you're not hanging around with a shitty fucking sweater in your closet that you have to put on every time that person walks into your house. Like, you know what I mean? Like the, the, the kindness of honesty is just so much better than the ridiculousness of lies and of covering it up and all of that. And it's everybody learns a lesson from the honesty. I mean, Mark Twain, I think said, um, if you always tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. (laughs) It's amazing. Isn't that good? Um, But I mean, at the same time, like certainly in my professional life, and I think in yours, on your professional side, you get given so much shit. And I'm fortunate. I have another whole life, which is generally all my uh, wife's childhood friends and the parents of our kids' friends. Yeah. So we can get rid of all this wild ass shit. Someone's like, hey, you're giving me a Ford's gin record player. I'm like, it's on you, buddy. You enjoy. Like, you know, it's like, I don't got... give that away. That's a client. It's amazing. <laughs> oh no, that was what, here's the thing. This is how balling out of control Ford's gin is. We actually have the same distributor in the Netherlands, Old Duff yeah. and Ford's gin, the amazing, a brand new day. Shout out to Ciro and Timo. And I went there. For the launch after um, Bar Convent Berlin. I was actually killing time for a day or two before I flew to Israel, which didn't happen. That's another story. But the party was a baller party. It was great. It was at lunchtime at the Pulitzer Hotel. And oh, everybody... Oh, in Amsterdam, the Pulitzer is amazing. Not as good as the Andas, but it's amazing. It's not bad. And everybody got uh, a goodie bag. And they said, hey, so look, everybody, we've got a bottle of Ford's gin for you. You haven't had it before. We've got this album... Ford's gin, you know, music to listen, you know, make martinis to. And oh, yeah. we know you don't have a record player. So everyone gets a record player. I mean, that's kind of amazing. It's fucking amazing. I, I already had one, however. So I gave it to a friend of mine and she loved it. So loved it. that's the nice thing about like regifting. Well, that's not really a regift because that's a brand gift. And who knows if you have one? Like, wasn't somebody wasn't like, I'm thinking about Philip Duff and I'm thinking maybe he doesn't have a record player. Like, like, so interestingly, um, one of the reasons why I love you so dearly is I remember. Um, Let's have more of these, by the way. Let's make this serious. <laughs> Um, I had told you at one time, like years ago when we had met how much I love Bill Bryson, the, uh, the author. And, um, 
you were invited to my birthday party. I think, well, I didn't throw myself a birthday party. El Weisberg threw me like, just kind of like, I don't know if it was a birthday party, but like a whole bunch of bar stops that we went mm-hmm. to. And she invited a whole bunch of people I love. And you and Elaine showed up and you, um, you, God, you hardly knew me. I mean, we had, we were acquaintances, you know, probably soon to be friends, I think, you know, I think we all knew that, but, um, you gave me a book. You gave me a Bill Bryson book. I think you gave me, uh, is it Notes from a Small Island? I forget, but um, it I probably it. was. It was. I mean, I was, well, we had talked about, I had read most of them and there was one that you, of course, you were like, well, have you read this? And I was like, I don't even know that that exists. And that was like a year before. And you took the chance that within that year, I had not read it. And I hadn't. And uh, you wrote something really lovely on the book. And I, like, you know, you were actually probably the only person to give me a gift besides the gift of presents or a party or all of those things, which are just as lovely. Which but is a bullshit gift, frankly. Totally bullshit. <laughs> I want presents. I want presents are like really like amazing compliments. Just stand there and compliment me. That's all I want. Or donuts and tacos. But um, anyway, um, I remember it was kind of, Anyway, not to blow smoke up your ass, but it was, uh, it was really nice. It was like, I was like, oh my God, this guy and his wife, uh, I forget if you were married at that time. Um, but I was like, oh God, they listened. We had a conversation and they listened. How rare. (laughs) It was really nice. No, it's a, it's a key thing. There's a thing I read. I think it's, it could be Freakonomics or Malcolm Gladwell. I'm not sure. And it was about networking, right? Mm-hmm. Or Andrew uh, Carnegie, my favorite. My neighbor up here on, uh, as, as we call it, Carnegie Hill, you <laughs> know, uh, he didn't have, he was not a Nepo baby. He came from nothing yep. and became the richest person in the world and then gave it all away. Do you know, he gave away all his wealth building libraries, but he was very clever. He would build the library. But the deal was the local city or council had to pay for the upkeep because having built all those steel factories in Pennsylvania, he knew it wasn't the construction that was the thing. It was the maintenance. Yeah. He built 2000 Carnegie libraries as far afield as Fiji. And there was a Carnegie library in my little village of 5000 people. Scary's North County Dublin in Ireland. And that's where I got my love of books. That's so cool. Yeah. Oh, well, that's anyway. Anyway, back to me. I love love (laughs) How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's one of my favorite books of all time. But one of my, also my favorite books is How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. (laughs) Toby. Also excellent. Also amazing. Um, Yes. Anyway, sorry, I digress. What were we talking about? No. So what it was, it was talking about with, uh, so when social networks grew up, No, actually, I'll zoom back a bit. The traditional idea of networking is that strong bonds are the best. You know, like your dad was a college roommate with this dude and he's the CEO, so he'll get you an internship. Social media has proved that that is not true. Like there's actual literal data from the LinkedIn's and all this world. Weak links are more important because you have more of them. People who want to join your social network are more obviously more positively inclined towards you. And they, because there are so many of them, instead of it being, have, have you ever heard this, the saying that um, 
as a species, we are chimps, but we act like ants. I have not heard that, but I'm imagining it, and it's fascinating. If you locked three chimps in a room for an hour, Mm -hmm. after an hour, you'd come back to find two dead chimps and one severely wounded chimp and a lot of blood. Oh, no. Right? It's just how they are. And we are closer to chimps than chimps are to gorillas. We are chimps uh, that learned how to eat protein. So our brains grew, except in the case of people uh, from certain countries. Um, However, if you left three humans in a room for an hour, you would come back with three best friends and (laughs) some pee in the corner. (laughs) Right? We have the advanced brain power of chimps, but we operate collectively like ants. And this article, I wish somebody could perhaps mention it in the comments. Um, It was about a guy. He was a theater empresario in like the 1950s. He made a load of money in in the Midwest. He moved to New York and had a fabulous life and he invested in movie shows. Uh, Sorry, uh, Broadway shows. But the thing was, if you ever met him, he would ask you for your name and address, you know, and your birthday. Mm. And he would write it down on a note, note card. No, he had a Rolodex. Yeah. And he would send you in. That was Andrew Carnegie. He wrote it every day. And so he would, so every, uh, so every time it was somebody's birthday, he would write them a, like a, a letter in the Rolodex. I started well, this guy, it. I don't think it was the same guy, but this guy did the same sort of thing twice a year. Yeah, I don't know, Christmas at his birthday, he would do a massive mail out and, you know, he'd mail you some kind of, you know, the 1960s or 50s equivalent of a gag gift, like a little shovel, like, hey, keep digging. So he had, like, there was all the people he knew, like close friends, people he'd call, investors, uh, shareholders, but there was a load of other people he had only ever met once. Yeah. You know, and he was an early network. The weak link is more powerful than the strong link. Uh, well, do you want to know what else? What's interesting is the weak link, and I think we talked about this earlier, you don't know as much, right? You like them. You like them on the surface. You don't know enough about them to dislike them or to love them or whatever, but you like them. Potentially, there's a level of respect because of whatever reason, right? And if you have thousands of those it's almost kind of more powerful than having like 10 amazing, like, oh, we vouch for this person. And it's similar. And an example of this is um, uh, <clears throat> Kate Moss. So Kate Moss, um, as a model, she never spoke. She never gave interviews. Never. Anything. And one of the reasons for her accent, apparently, um, back in the day when class was a big thing, you know. It um, still is. And it potentially still is, but um, she's still scum. <laughs> okay, well, I will leave that to you. I love me some Kate Moss, but that's but I'm an American, so I don't know anything. But um, you know, I the fact that like her accent was X or Y or whatever, and you know the things that she said potentially were going to rub people the wrong way. Her not speaking, not giving interviews, her not providing context or personality behind her persona allowed her the ability to attach herself to every single brand known to man. She could connect herself to a Target or a Zara and to connect herself to a Marc Jacobs and a Chanel, you know, like, so she was able to spread the gamut and be a represent, 
representative of every single brand known to man because she had never injected her actual real personality to what she looked like, which is, it's kind of fascinating when you think about brand building or representation and whether you have a talking head for your company or whether you don't and who you have and who you don't and what they say. But, um, but I think that's fascinating, but also to the point of weak links versus strong links, I, I think, yes, I would say that the data and actually in my own personal experience, I have like five close friends. Like people think. I'm amazed uh, you have that many. Right. Well, but people. I always say that because as you get older, friends are the people. If you call them and you say, look, things got out of hand and she's dead. (laughs) They'll say, I have a shovel. If you have a shovel as well, I'll be there in half an hour. Yeah. That's not what I said. That was my friend Kurt Schlechter in Cape Totally. Obviously. But those are really. When you're in jail and you have one phone call, who's going to pick up? That's a friend. Someone who will buy you a drink in the bar if they bump into you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's, you know, I have, uh, I have a lot of acquaintances. I have a lot of, it's so funny. I, I actually sometimes how I'll describe it because I don't want to lie either. Like, I don't want to lie about who I know and who I don't know. I'm like, oh yeah, I know them. You know what I mean? I'll kind of say, oh, they're a strong acquaintance or I'll be like, they're a light friend, <laughs> you know, like there's light levels. friends. Light I have light. Harsh. No, but that like a light friend is stronger than a strong acquaintance. You know what I'm like? I'm like, they've, they've broken the threshold, but we're not like waxing poetic. Oh, on the only in the Harrison level. universe where you have a ranking. <laughs> I, I, I have a ranking of friends, but it's not a bad thing in my mind. And it, it's weirdly, it's more of a, it's more of a way that I'm not lying about the people I know. Cause there's so many people out there. They're like, Oh my God, there's like, they're one of my best friends. Like I love them. And I'm like, and then you talk to them, they're like, yeah, I've met them like twice. So I'm like, okay, cool. Um, so for me, you know, when somebody's like, do you know them? And I was like, yeah, I would say they're a strong acquaintance. They're a really strong acquaintance. You know, they're, they're edging towards late friends, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. I'm just trying not to lie about my relationship with people. Um, there's a lot of people that you and I know, and this world is very broad. And I also, besides this world, I'm, I also, I mean, besides the spirits world and the bar world and everything, I'm also lightly in the restaurant world and strongly in the hotel world. And then obviously like lifestyle and fashion. And so there's a lot of worlds that I dip my toes in. And so there's a lot of people that are connected to that. And I just, I just never want to be one of those people that are like, oh my God, she said, she said that like she knew you like really well, <laughs> you know, like I don't want ever to be called out by pretending I am somebody I'm not. So the, oppos- I, the I, opposite I, problem is one that started happening to me more than 20 years ago because I travel a lot. I teach a lot and I do seminars and whatnot. So there's many more people who know who I am than know me than people who've ever even said hello to me. <laughs> and it only started kicking in about 10 or 12 years ago that I'd be chatting to somebody. Hey, man, how's it going? I'm like, oh, yeah, good. Man. I, said, I see you were in Australia. I was oh, I fucking love Australia. I was like, how's Elaine? She seems good. I'm like, Elaine's good. And I'd be talking for like half an hour. And I realized I have never met this guy. Right? I And the other thing would happen as well, where I would be having that conversation for ages and not remember 
that I had actually met this guy and hung out for a while. So I took my inspiration from the well-known uh, etiquette master, um, Axel Rose. <laughs> I once saw an interview with him. I think it was at the end of the Appetite of Destruction tour when he was close to death. And he's talking. It's one of those candid interviews. It's a documentary. And he's someone's talking to him. And it's instantly obvious he has no idea. <laughs> like no idea oh, man, he, has, cool. he has little idea where he is meaning <laughs> not just country but continent and he's like yeah man i get it i dig it man like yeah oh, it's so fucking cool i'm like that's what i'm going to do so if you've ever had me do that to you <laughs> even if we've been lifelong friends i want to make it clear it's not you it's me also i drink so <laughs> like it's just a numbers game. As I say, you know you, you know why so many people sleep with bartenders? This why? Is one of my old stand-up bits. I'm glad you asked, Rachel. Thank you. <laughs> um, it's not biology. It's not because they're hot. Right? It's not chemistry. It's not pheromones. Nope. Numbers? It's a little bit of geography. You're there and they're there. But it's mostly, good guess, Mathematics. There's <laughs> 300 of you and one, one of, of them. them. And they're and on stage. And you're on stage. And you're on stage. And you're in control. And you're more sober. And you look cool. And, they're the drummer. Well, <laughs> sometimes you're the lead singer. It actually brings me back to something that you said about waitressing that I wanted to jump in with. But it's yes. not cool for men to interrupt women anymore. Uh, Fair. Again, bringing it back to our friend, well-known Brooklyn party boy, David Wayne. Yeah. I want to um, hear this. I want to hear this. Can I pee first? And can you can you rewind? Right. Can we edit this out? Hold on. No, uh, we're gonna pause it. Okay, and we're back. I actually turned on the recording. Um, we've both just had our peas. We're not going to edit it out. So I don't know how to edit stuff. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed well, your amazing. All, I don't. I hope you do edit some of this shit because nobody's going to be listening to either one of us for two hours. That's never going to happen. Our highest rated episode ever was just over three hours. Stop it! I lie not. I I am drinking a fine Irish whiskey in your honor. I can't. I Slain. Uh, mine's from somewhere near there. I can't say it. Yes. Slancha. <laughs> Slancha. Oh, so, I do Ireland. Sorry. Go, go ahead. You've, you've, I just want to finish the story. So I was out drinking with Dave Wonder somewhere. I'm not entirely sure. I think it was either, it's going to sound like a humble brag, either Amsterdam or Sydney. Sure. And we were talking about hipsters. And he said, God fucking bless hipsters because they saved. So they saved craft cocktails, they saved coffee, they saved craft beer, because there were a load of people who were on track to be cost accountants and marketing coordinators or something. And they said, no, fuck it. I want to work with my hands and I want to see the product of my work. So when you were talking about waitressing, I was thinking about that. I spent decades as a bartender and you have instant feedback you said the nicest thing was being able to get a grumpy couple in well you know you could you know and minutes before you had talked about you know working with a client work with a client for six months longer and it just doesn't work sometimes that's just the nature of the game right nobody 
bats 100 all the time. But you get instant feedback if you work in a coffee shop. You get instant feedback in a cocktail bar. And that's what a lot of people want to do. And the joy of working with your hands has an unexpected benefit, which is when you go home, you're done. Yeah. My father drove cars. He delivered cars. When he got home, he couldn't have taken his work home with him if he wanted to. That was impossible. You know? So I think there's something of that in us. Oh, I love it. The ability to, uh, the ability to be able to shut off when you go, no, don't get me wrong. I would be home and I'd be dreaming about the shrimp cocktail. I forgot to deliver to table seven, but it was over. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it was, it was, it was essentially over. And I think probably, uh, people like you own your own business. I own my own business. And, um, it never ends, you know. You're always you're always thinking about what you can have done better. I will say, um, I used to I used to stay up at night. I used to not be able to sleep at night. Uh, the stress used to keep me awake. My throat would feel like it was going to close up, and uh, I, I I didn't sleep for years, really. Um, and there was a moment where I leveled up, like I learned you have to care less. And it's not, it's not caring less about your clients. It's just caring less about the fact that like, you can't care um, what people think about you. You can't care. Uh, you can't, if, if you didn't, if your client isn't, uh, if your client isn't happy with what you delivered, it doesn't mean you didn't deliver. It doesn't mean you didn't actually do a good job. Like you did, you know, you did, you know, I always do. I really always do the best that I possibly can. And as long as you know that you are doing the best that you possibly can, that's really fucking all you can do. And there's nothing else, really. You have to kind of leave that there in the universe. You did the best you possibly could. And do I believe I'm one of the best in the business? Absolutely. So my best is really fucking good, (laughs) you know? And so if it didn't work. I have to breathe and relax and just fucking let it go. I, I have. Mean, I, I have done things that didn't work out yeah. in my life, but those people are dead now. Ooh. So it's not my problem. Yeah, my fiance. Is dead. <laughs> I mean, I hope yeah, most, all your staff are listening to this. It's like, I know. Fuck. So, most, no, most like you, you need imagine. Did you ever read like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams? Ages ago, and I also saw the movie ages ago. Oh, I never saw the movie. But there was one one of the books had a thing in it, which was the ultimate intergalactic torture machine. It was called the um <laughs> the perspective, whatever, right? If I say to you, Oh, we're all grains of sand on a beach in a galaxy of infinite deserts. Yeah. We, we can't actually understand that. Our chimp sure. brains. We're very important. What do you mean? Our our chimp brain just goes up to, uh, 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 that's a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So the perspective machine torture chamber allowed you to understand the actual perspective of that and your brain would explode, right? Because you understood the concept. My ego certainly couldn't take the fact that I'm just a grain of sand like everybody else. Like my ego would explode, really. You are a unique unicorn just like everybody else. (laughs) But what I mean is, in terms of empathy and sociopathy, 
everybody, not everything's on a spectrum, but in this case, everybody is on a spectrum. And if you imagine if it went from zero to 10 and 10 was the most empathetic person in the world, you would wake up, glance at the headlines and immediately kill yourself. <laughs> right. And if you were a one like me, um, you would wake up, look at the things about, you know, war here, death there, genocide, rape and giggle. <laughs> right. So you need to be somewhere. In the in middle. There, and it and it might now it might switch back. Well, okay. As I say, so my wife, Mrs. Duff, Elaine, friend of the show, um, is a very empathetic person. Right? If I'm a six, she's an eight. Sure. That's I love not a that's not better though, because she no. it, well, if we were both made CEOs. It's not better or worse. It's just it's, well, it's, it's, it's not. It's, I I, I like, guess I'm just talking about business. Sure. Right? The only thing I can, I can be sure of is that Elaine is not listening. But if she was made CEO of Amazon and I was made CEO of Boeing, sure. at Amazon, she might have to fire 50,000 people, right, yeah. so that the company survives. And that would kill her. Whereas at Boeing, if I fired 50,000 people, I also wouldn't love it. I'd only have one martini in the executive suite that day, but it's necessary. Yeah, but uh, you're... Courses for courses. Philip, you're discrediting your wife. I mean, you really are. At the end of the day, like during the pandemic, I had to lay off 80% of my staff. It was one of the hardest things I ever had to do, but I knew I had to do it. And I did it. And Imagine if you hadn't been able to do it. Imagine if it fucked you up. It did fuck me up. But worse than it did, I mean. Well, I oh my God, are you kidding me? I, I was depressed. It could have been worse, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, how much, how much, I don't know anybody that's going to like fucking throw their, themselves off a bridge because they had to lay people off because they had to save their company. I mean, like it's, if you own a company, you shouldn't. Be, that's the you shouldn't be in that fragile fucking state. It, it's self-selecting, you know, like, though, isn't it? But if, it if is you are going to be the person who starts a company, you're probably yeah. already more resilient. Firing people is really hard, and it is emotionally exhausting. And I remember the first time I ever had to fire somebody was in 2014, and it was scary and hard and horrible, and my heart broke. Um, and this person just wasn't cutting it and they weren't going to ever cut it. And I knew it. And, but I liked them as a human. And of course, I'm sure they hate me because they think that I'm some horrible human that just fired them. But I had to go home and take a nap. Like I, I remember doing it. I remember looking at my business partner at the time and being like, that was so horrible. And I am emotionally exhausted and I need to go home. Like that was really hard for me. That's sensible though. Well, it's so funny though, because like, of course my pain is nothing in comparison to the person that no longer has a job. Like who would, who would pity the person who has to fire somebody? Who pities the executioner? (laughs) However, he's also emotionally scarred. You know what? The executioner very well may have been scarred. Honestly. Uh, but that's a whole, that's a Salem witches. That's an English thing. That's a beheading. I mean, the torturer was a whole different person. Then let's ex- get back to you. Okay. Sorry. 
and you being a piece of shit. No, but like, look, you fired that person. There's another way to look at this. We can Marie Kondo this shit. You set that person free for their ideal job. It's unfair to keep them locked up in a cage that doesn't fit them. Every single person, like, listen, there's a lot of companies out there that when somebody doesn't work out, they're going to push them out. Right. And um, I don't like, I don't like firing people. I really dislike firing people. I don't want to fire anybody. If you ever Uh, need me to come in and fire somebody for you, I'm happy to. Oh, I have, I have team members on staff that are perfectly capable of doing it. And they're, uh, they're kind, considerate and very professional and think, but if you ever need somebody different to that, (laughs) somebody brutal and uncaring, Honestly, I'm, I am. I'm on so the sixth happy. train. I could just come down. Like, yeah, well, I am so happy that I have gotten to a level where I don't have to do it myself anymore. And I, it, I, I call everybody after, and I talk to everybody for the most part. And you know, I and you're like, hey, that, that person, that person who fired you that I told to fire you, they're a total dick. Well, actually, <laughs> you know, uh, most times I'm not the one making the decision. Like, I'm, I'm the final. Um, Pretend, like I'm the final approval on top of it, but but it, but it is a thing. Like you, you might be setting them free for the best job they've ever had. And, and oftentimes, I'll look at somebody when you know, I do a lot of the HR myself. I do a lot of the talking to my team myself, and I'll look at them and I'll be like, "Hey, like, is this really what you want to do? <laughs> like, do you really want to be here? Like, because." We've been kind of having the same conversation like month over month and you're not really getting better. Like, let's talk about the reality of the situation. Are you happy? Like, or are you going to be happier someplace else? Because I will help you go someplace else. I will help you do X, Y, and Z. I will give you a reference. You are smart. You are capable. You're just not doing a good job here. <laughs> and I'll tell them that like straight out, like, and I'm going to be like, and like, we have to do everything legally. So we give everybody kind of like, you know, the first warning and the, this and the, that, and don't get me wrong. Like New York city is an at will state and I could fire anybody at any moment, but it's, it is what it is. I want to do things professionally, but um, you know, uh, sometimes people stay after that. And I'm like, Oh, really? really you're you're really just gonna hang out and just kind of take the paycheck and do nothing still cool cool okay so all right well i mean there's the same writer who told me about the whole reference thing he he's well this is a bigger conversation i'll bring it up in a moment but it was about men and women biological men and women nothing about gender and women tend to be psychologically what's called agreeable and men tend to be disagreeable. It's a purely hormonal thing. Sure. Women have more of the agreeable hormones because otherwise, when they had babies, when the babies began screaming, which babies do all the time, um, they would murder the babies. Obviously. Totally. Right? And that's why women look after babies and men don't. Because men... We might can... call that agreeable. Or we might call that patience. Yeah. Fair. Sure. Fair. I mean, men can mur- murder babies all day long. Really, it's 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 barely a thing. Anyway, but he had a metaphor. He said, "Look, you have to edit that shit out, right?" 
Yeah, sure. Uh, if I could. talking about murdering babies. This is the least controversial thing we've ever said on the show. <laughs> but his thing was, take a mega business school, an MBA school, right? And let's imagine all the graduates are exactly equal. They're all equally tall, attractive, fit, healthy, charming, 50-50, male and female. Everything is there. You cannot choose. You can't choose, right? And you say, hey, look, congratulations. Here's your diploma. In the parking lot, there are, there are 200 CEOs from the Fortune 500 bending over with their ass cheeks in the air. And if you want a job with their company, all you have to do is walk along and slot your business card in between the ass cheeks. Philip. 80% of the biological males would do that. And what percentage of the ladies do you think would do it? The biological females, I mean. Not really. 5%. No, more than that, I think. But what I'm saying is a far lower percentage. Right? Because you're doing something disagreeable. This is why we don't have, like, like the, a huge amount of women want to work in PR. A significant amount, a significantly less amount of women want to be truck drivers. But truck driving for a woman is much more lucrative than PR. Like, you make a fortune. You really do very well. <laughs> no, but women don't want to be truck drivers. You don't make any money in PR. Well, that's I don't the even thing. know why anybody wants to be in it. No, truck driving, no college at all. You can be on 150 grand at, like, the age of, you know, 25. Yeah. I will say, though, in PR you will make it past 150 and in truck driving, your cap is 150. Um, That's true. But you hit your cap at 25. What age do you need to be to get to 150 grand a year in PR? Oh, you probably need 10 years experience. So you're going to be 35. Totally. Yep. Right. So that being said, and the only reason why anybody wants to be in PR at all is number one, you get to like eat and drink and stay and experience some of the most amazing things in the fucking world. Like you really do. Like you get to talk to the best of the best in every industry. Like you get to like hang out like like Philip Duff. You get to I didn't want to talk. say that. But like, I've yeah, known you forever. Yeah. And your <laughs> wife. And your wife. And like frankly, like all, hey, like, I get to hang out with my wife. That's because of the drinks industry. <laughs> like, you know what, though? Like, in, at the beginning of my career, um, I met you, and I was very lucky to have met you because of my career. But all of you are my friends now, and that's, like, it's really fucking cool, you know? Like, I I can go any place in the entire world because of – I can go – it doesn't matter if I owned my own company or if I was still on the trajectory of where I was going, but um, like working agency or working wherever, but the, the profession I chose in public relations, I have made so many friends. I can go any place in the world and velvet ropes disappear. 
Yes. Like I don't, I don't have to wait in line. I don't like I, people. Um, and listen, I've, I've achieved this because I've done a lot of favors for people. I am very kind to people. They are kind to me. We have been in the same place. It's not, it's not like, it's not like a douchey kind of Ian Schrager thing. It's a industry thing. It's a like, Hey, we're all working together. We're all working for the same purpose. We're all kind. We're considerate. We help each other. We're partners. We're friends. And so I get to sit at the bar at one of the world's 50 best bars in the entire world when nobody else can get in. And I just emailed somebody yesterday and that's amazing. That is amazing. And we all get to do that because we are respectful and we are kind and we are considerate and we are professional and we are the best in the business and we do favors for each other and we help each other out left, right, and center because that's what we do because we're in a very tiny little mini community that loves each other so intensely. And it's, it's really uh, weird. <laughs> it's really fucking weird, you know, but um, I remember uh, when I was in PR at Dan Clora's. Um, I was, I was probably the best of my, I was, I was the best of my game at Dan Clara's. I was doing some pretty spectacular shit. It's been you know? all downhill uh, since then, frankly. Yeah, it's like well, <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's been uphill in some ways and downhills in other ways. Like when I was at Dan Clara's, um, I got the empire hotel written into the script of gossip girl. That was a highlight. That was pretty cool. And um, I also got the cast of the real world to live in my hotel in Cancun. So I was doing a lot of like TV and production and stuff. And I was, the Empire Hotel is a gorgeous hotel, but it's not an amazing hotel and it needed some love. And the hotel in Cancun is a beautiful hotel, but it's in Cancun. You know what I mean? So that needed some love. Like For European there was, listeners, Mallorca. My, <laughs> <laughs> Like I was at the top of my game, um, but I forget what we're talking about. What were we talking about? Well, I think maybe, you know, projecting back to young Rachel, you had nothing else, you know, so you can do that stuff. And what tends to happen as you get older, when you're young, it's you're living paycheck to paycheck. You fucking adore it. You're going out parties. Being a young PR person is like being a young bartender or a young waiter. You you know, you're killing it. It's great. And you can be creative because there's nothing else in your life. There's no kids. There's no wife. There's no ex-wife. There's no stepkids. There's no mortgage. There, Sounds like you're you know. talking about yourself, Philip. No, I'm talking about everyone except me. I mean, I've had the most fucking amazing life. It's ridiculous. But I don't have I'm, any of those things. I don't have stepkids. I don't have mortgage. I have a dog. I have a dog and a business. I didn't even know you had a dog. She's so cute. She just walked in. Uh, no, but what I mean is creativity comes from relaxation, divorcing yourself from your job. Yeah. You do it instinctively when you're young. As you get older, all this shit comes up. And then you find yourself having to hire people to be creative. And that's kind of what I, a lot of my work, I'm hired to be creative about things. I know structures and systems and I can execute, but I'm an amazing creative person. And it's because I go out and get drunk and read the paper and go to a show and all that kind of thing. Like you've got to leave 
I, I listened to a podcast with the legendary music producer Rick Rubin recently, and he said, you've got to leave room for God to come in. He's an atheist. But what he means is you've got to let the madness in. <laughs> you can do it with drugs, but you can also do it with, you know, going to a show or just going for a fucking walk. No AirPods, nothing. I agree. I think I've... um so funny. It's like, I think sometimes when like, um, I was talking to my therapist today and it was, this very is the most New York conversation. I know. Ever. <laughs> oh my God. My therapist today. I know. <laughs> well, it was very funny. She was like, shout out to Dr. Perelman. <laughs> I have Linda Turner. She's an art therapist, which is hilarious. Cause we do no art. I remember the link first in the show notes. Use code Rachel for 10% off doctor's therapy for the first month. (laughs) I'm sorry. If anybody actually knew like the life that I lived, like, like how I was brought up and they were like, oh, fuck, you're normal. Shit. We got to talk to her (laughs) because there is literally no way I should be normal right now. Give us a quick, give us a quick journey. No, I'm very interested. Uh, Just to give you some perspective. Uh, yesterday or two days ago, I taped a podcast with Derek Brown. Yeah. The man, legendary bar owner, bartender, Washington, D.C., got on a wellness journey in 2018, gave up alcohol, but is now a wellness coach. And he, he just coaches people on how to deal with alcohol. Don't have to give it up. Nothing like that. Amazing. And we talked yeah. about therapy. So just as an example, just tell us how, just with this doctor, uh, person yeah. how you started and how it's going <laughs> no but well, what, what what you know your first session why you did it and where you're at now if you don't mind it's personal sure. you don't have to talk about it but that's an absolute insane question i've been in therapy since i was six but just this doctor we don't have that much time we don't I do mean, five hour podcasts here well i i can't even answer that question like basically this doctor who i love more than anything is um uh, was just basically a, I moved from X to X to X because I moved from country to country to country and right. found this human. I did, however, I did find her after testing out about seven other doctors, one of which, seven, one of which uh, was drinking wine from a Pepsi gallon. I think it was a, not a gallon, maybe a liter or uh, drinking wine from a leader and fell asleep during our session. I was like, heavens to Murgatroyd. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Um, I reported her. Wow. Yeah, that to was who? Uh, AA? Yeah. No, I reported her to the, I don't know. Like, I just, like, I went to my insurance and I was like, this doctor. I mean, were, 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 was what you were telling her so bad that actually, she had to drink her, herself like, into oblivion? First of all, what I was telling her was actually ridiculously riveting, at least in my opinion. Although potentially I'm incredibly boring. Who knows? If your therapist, hey, anyone who's listening, if your therapist has to get hammered to listen to you. (laughs) Well, my therapist now adores me and yawns very little. So um, I think I'm all right. Let me ask you, I've never done therapy. Oscar Wilde said that the Irish are impervious to therapy. Yeah. Um, is, is, have, have you been doing this for a while? Since I was six. No, but this this particular therapist. Oh, uh, yeah, I think we're on like, I think we're actually on 13 years. 
13 years. So is it like a thing that you just like doing or do you think you're still progressing? You know, it's interesting. Um, there are many years where I think I was just kind of going through the motions. Mm-hmm. Um, like pleasing I, your therapist. I don't know if it was that. Maybe it was pleasing myself or just kind of having somebody to talk to, which was nice. Somebody who would valuable, never anybody, valuable. Somebody who would never tell anybody anything. Maybe some of the most horrible things I had to say about people that I could just tell her and Beautiful. not anybody else. Um, the last year has been very interesting for me. And I would say it's been interesting for me for a number of different reasons, but it's also been interesting for me with her, with my therapist. And mm -hmm. it's, it's very funny. Um, she'll say the same thing. She'll be like, I feel like we've, she said to me that she felt like she did the most work with me in the last year than she's done in the last 13 years. Um, interesting. So what, if I may, what would you think about that? And then what do you think she means about that? If you wouldn't mind. I. What do you think about that statement that she made? I agree. Completely. I agree. I think something at the beginning of the year happened to me uh, that was so horrible. Um I mean, God, it wasn't cancer and it wasn't losing a mother and it wasn't horrible, horrible. It was a, a relationship situation that to me was fucking horrible. Um, and it, it floored me. It fucking floored me. It floored me to a point that I was not existing anymore. Like it floored me to a point where everything stopped and thank God, thank God goodness i have um strong team members and i have people who can run my business because if i didn't have that i would have lost everything like mm -hmm. what happened to me was um or i guess it's not maybe what happened to me but how it affected me was um well no i, I think we can say that that was a thing but well only because you know i do but you're a therapist now now, now we're really building you know, castles in the air. But yeah. this is somebody that you've known for a long time. Uh, definite, you know, whatever, what happened to you was terrible. It would be terrible to anybody. This isn't like, oh, your dog died. This is a bad, bad, bad thing. You've known this therapist for ages. Yeah. Could you like get outside yourself and look at how this therapist dealt with it and tell us? Because this is fascinating for me because I've never been to therapy. Well, I don't think it has anything to do with the therapist. I think it has to do with the fact that my chest was ripped wide open and she she had shit to play with. You but, know what, I mean? what I mean is that was the first time, uh, you know, it was that extreme in all your time. Did you yeah. notice a difference? Were you too distraught? Did you, like it changed your relationship? My therapist does a few things. She does... Um, she so fucked up it's not fucked up at all it's like amazing but she does certain things um she does parts work she does this like tapping in kind of thing she does all sorts of different kind of work and um for the first time it was like my heart was ripped like so far open that she was and i was so vulnerable and i was so oh god i was just like i don't know i was weak 
I'm a very strong person, but I was very weak in this moment in time. The and strong, you know what Ernest Hemingway said? The what? world breaks everybody. Yeah. And some are stronger at the broken places. But the other side of that is... The Chinese the, vases, you know, you break them and then they have these beautiful... beautiful well, you made a Japanese kintsugi, the gold yeah. mending. Yeah, but my thing is, tough people, they have a chink in their armor and they're not used to being beaten down. So when they get beaten down, they break. Yeah. Whereas, you know, it's it's good to get beaten up. What I'm saying is, you've been a tough person since before I met you. Yeah. So it hit you harder. You got over it. But you were you were talking about your therapist, and I just um I I had I hadn't felt like this in a very long time, and this was um it was just it was interesting and it was hard, and I, my heart was broken wide open, and I was very vulnerable and very um. I don't know what it was, uh, but she, I was more potentially open to working on myself. And I think I, I just was kind of like, I need to fix this. I need to fucking fix this. You know, like, I just, can we fucking fix it? Like, can we fix it? Can we fix it? And I was just for a long time for six months uh, up until now, I guess that was March ish. I was just, I want to do everything humanly possible to, um, I just wanted to be stronger. I wanted to be better. I wanted to be, I just wanted to move towards, I don't know. What do we move towards? I don't know. Cause I just, I wanted Maybe to. Maybe you're not moving towards something. You're moving away from something. I don't know what it is. I, I just, because it's like my therapist, I, I want to say, I want to move towards normal. Like my entire life has been, I want to move towards normal. And my therapist will be like, Rachel, what are you talking about? There is no normal. There is no this. There is no this. And I'm like, why is your therapist a middle-aged English guy? Like, but, <laughs> you're doing that, you're doing that like, voice. I don't know like, who Rachel, she is, but I feel Rachel. like she's like a fashion, like she's like, she's kind of this, like, I, I I don't know what she is. I, I can't even say it here. She's, so she's not like David Beckham. Hey, hey, you're right, Rachel. <laughs> well, I will say something. You're, uh, what I've observed of your journey, how you do it, you've really gotten into fitness and whatnot. And we're both a little older, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not ashamed to admit that I'm 29. Right? Obviously. And, and, and things okay. are not, you know, moving as easy <laughs> as they are. But um, you probably always worked out, right? No. Or did you? No? Did you give up no. working out after gymnastics? Nope. No, I was drinking and doing drugs and making out with boys. So before, you know, a year or two ago, any working out at all or no? Yeah. You know, I started probably a decade ago. Um, but I was really, really lucky for a long time. I had this muscle memory that like kind of like traveled through college up until I was about 33, 35-ish, where I was still thin. My my metabolism was going. And, and then um, I started gaining weight. I started gaining like a pound a year or two pounds a year kind of thing. Um and it was fine. 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 And then it wasn't fine. <laughs> like there was one moment where I was like, what the fuck? 
what the living fuck, how did I hit this number on a scale? And, and I love my mother. I love my mother's death, but I looked at my legs and I was like, and how do my legs look like my mother's legs? Like, how, what, what is happening here? And she's like, <laughs> oh. she was like, you look great. You look amazing. Actually, you know, it's horrible. Is she told me I didn't look great. And she told me I didn't look amazing. Like my mother has never said anything negative to me ever, but she's like, um, you've looked better. I don't, I don't know what, I don't, you know, you're fine, but like, you've been, you've been skinnier. And I'm like, what? <laughs> well, look, what I'm saying is you're someone in my world and you've really ramped it up. Thank you. Right. No, no, yeah. it's, it's a very obvious thing, but like what has been the, the, the best bit of it, understanding that working out sucks. Like I got up at 5.30 a.m. this morning and I went to the gym and I did not want to go, yeah. you know, and, and and you're doing stuff. But is there, if you go to the gym, yeah. right, is there a thing that you do with the gym where you're like, okay, I like that? Yeah, I like all of it. Uh, all of it? No. There's got to be one thing you like more than I that. love pistols. I love pull-ups. I love running in rows. I love chest presses. I what, love what do you do to get you going? Are you listening to music? Are you are you looking at a photograph of me? Is Honestly, that is that's what's working? Because it's okay. That's oh, so okay, Rachel. Obviously, that's part of the equation. Okay, so I don't know how much of this you're going to actually put into the podcast because this is very. We really right don't edit this podcast, Rachel. Like, really? Not at all. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to talk like there's what 12 people listening is that how I'm going to talk? Yeah, between 12 and 1000. <laughs> All right. So originally, I mean, why not be honest, right? I mean, that's what I've been talking about the entire time. Yes. So, I had been going to my physical trainer, uh my personal trainer uh twice a week. And I just I wanted to very slowly lose a little bit of weight, blah blah blah, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The dude I was dating uh cheated on me with a personal trainer with fake boobs. So I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I was like, I was like, I was a personal, like I was a competitive gymnast. Like I can get my body back in like six months. So I looked at my personal trainer and I looked at it and I was like, all right, you and I, we're doing three days a week. If not four, we're doing this. And she was like, all right. And I did like, I was like, all right, I did back bends and I did back walkovers and I kind of got my gymnast thing back. Um, and then I had a few surgeries and I lost everything again. And, and, and now it's very interesting. Like I'm, I'm no longer, I'm no longer working out because of the breakup and the person, the personal trainer who he cheated on me with, like, I don't give a shit, you know, but like, that is honestly what drove me revenge and potential pettiness and does jealousy. it drive you now to work out uh, yeah i mean that doesn't but um sure uh, ultimately what drives me is always me like i would say everything that drives me is 80% me i love i love being healthy i love I love, um, I love my body being shaped in a certain way. I love being able to wear certain things. I love my, I love being healthy. I love eating healthy things. 
Um, I love traveling the world. I like being smart. Like I like things. Like I like, I like to shape my entire being into um, not something that's interesting for other people, but these days, like something that's interesting for myself, which is odd. Um, But sure. Do you consider happiness? This is something I came up in my conversation with, uh, with Derek Brown. There's a thing. If you don't, if you work, if you wake up and you work out. Yeah. And in the morning time, you get outside and you walk for 20 minutes and you see the sun. Yeah. And you don't drink caffeine for two two hours after you wake up. And you don't eat too much. You don't eat the wrong stuff. And you don't eat too much before you go to bed. And you don't drink too much alcohol. If you do that cumulatively for a few days... You wake up, not just feeling okay, not just like you've got no hangover. You wake up feeling great. You wake up feeling like happy. That's the thing with me. And it's actually very hard to do, especially in New York City, because everybody, like even if I go out and I have one drink, yeah, I do feel it the next day, although I have an enormous capacity. I feel know? better when I don't drink. I always yeah. have, and I always will. We all will. It's not a thing. It's just, it, it just is, you know, I mean, like I, these days and I'm old, I'm 48 years old. Um, I, I drink when the occasion calls for it. Um, I drink, I used to, oh God, I used to have so much fun and I, I, I would probably still have fun today. I, I don't know what it is, but these days, I, if I have to go to an event or I have to go to a work event or I have to hang out with people, um, I've, I've started to realize that I am just as much fun, um, not drinking as I was when I was drinking and I have to choose those moments, you know, um, there are also celebration moments or, I mean, frankly, I'm drinking with you right now, um, mostly because, I actually think I'm a little bit funnier and potentially more loose and potentially like, I know I'm drinking with you right now because I know that I will be less guarded if I'm a tad looser, frankly, and it'll make for much better, whatever we're doing. Um, Otherwise I am all fucking message points. (laughs) I really am like, and but even but th- going, this out. brings us back to the whole thing. Yeah. Sometimes you have to relax. You have to be creative. And we're we're doing a podcast. Yes, we are. But as humans, we do not think and talk. We talk to think. We do not really formulate our thoughts. We put our thoughts out in the world. I don't know if that's a you thing or an everyone thing. I, I think there are actually some, especially introverts who think first before they speak. And some of them choose not to talk. Like I have a brother-in-law who I love more than anything who hardly speaks, 
And when he does, it is the funniest thing you will ever hear in your life. You're like, oh shit, thank God. Thank God we waited for that. That was amazing. You know, um, you and I are talkers. We just are, you know? And so I like to think that I listen. I like to think that I'm not one of those people that jumps in because they're waiting to talk. I, and I've gotten so much better at it. Like I've gotten so much better at it. I, but it's, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to be a person who talks before they thinks or, or thinks before they talk. So I want to be a person who fucking hangs out for a little while and just doesn't do anything. Like, cause why, you know, does that make sense? No, of course, of course. But eventually we are all the, the crazy person that we are inside. We are. It's like true. somebody, you know, so, you know, somebody wants to tell jokes. Somebody, some people are excellent listeners, and there's other people around there, and that's fine as well. Like, I'm honestly don't laugh, and you should laugh because I'm the person that should be laughed about. I'm thinking of writing a book on etiquette, modern etiquette, because people don't know. They don't know how to behave at a bar, at a table, in an Uber. And <laughs> etiquette guys, they evolve over the years. Like, have you ever actually read Emily Post, The Etiquette Guide? Do you know, after college, my girlfriends, um, who all had, like I was saying, more money than I did, um, and they all had better manners than I did. and. Um, to this day. Well, actually, to this I'm still day, in touch with some of those girls. To this day, I would probably be better because I made an effort of fucking learning because I cared about it. But my uh, my college roommate, uh, Trish Boyda, who I love more than anything. Shout um, out to Trish. Love her. Uh, she gave me a book on like uh, the dummies guide to etiquette. I mean, we were, God, how old were we? Like, 22 or something and i loved it like i loved it but like i remember like every place we showed up she would bring a gift you know and i never did that i was never taught to do that it was so foreign to me i just showed up because somebody invited me and every place she showed up she would bring gift and i'm like oh, wait should i bring something and she's like yes and i'm like uh i have like 42 minutes <laughs> you know and um so she brought she brought me the guide to etiquette. Today, like these days, um, I think I'm better at it. It's not innate. It was never taught to me. You know, I've learned it. Um, it it is a skill. It is something learned. Um, it's not, it's very Irish too. Oh, for fuck's sake! I remember living in Ireland. Like, oh my god, Brendan. When he was in Boston, when he lived, that's in Brendan Fitzpatrick for people who just joined the patch. And apparently, podcast. there's a joke that I don't know about. But oh, right. everybody Irish knows about this joke. Hmm. Anything. So he would bring a gift every time we showed up someplace, and I'd be like, "Why are you? Why are you bringing a gift? It's my aunt. I've known her for like 120 years." And he's like, "We're." obviously bringing a gift 
And the funny thing is, is we'd be like, we're picking up a bottle of wine or picking up dessert. And we'd show up to my aunt's house and she'd be like, we have so much wine and I made all the desserts. Why do you bring more? And I'd be like, no, why didn't he bring more? You know? And he'd be like, he's like, you don't show up without a gift. And I'm like, no, no, no. This is my family. You all have like a role. Like you don't show up with new shit. New shit is annoying. You know, like, I don't know why, but like, that's just kind of what I was taught. (laughs) So showing up to other places with gifts and stuff, I'm like, Oh, isn't that going to be like annoying? <laughs> I don't know. Now it, it it always changes and it's always fluid. So I wrote a post on Facebook for the old people and about you know some aspect of etiquette, and it got more likes and comments than anything ever before. So I read Emily Post. A hundred years later, there is an Emily Post Institute being run by her kids. And I, I, I read the 14th edition of the book. And honestly, it's amazing. No, it's great. However, you came to the modern cocktail thing late, right? I did. If you wanted to learn cocktails, before you started seeing books by Dale DeGroff and Salvatore Calabresi, you would buy the whole, like, 600 cocktails for Christmas books. And the books, the information you needed was in there. It was good. They were like, hey, freeze the ice, squeeze the juice fresh. It was amazing. However, it was drowning in the bullshit thing. Like, oh, freeze cupcakes into the ice and carve... (laughs) fucking onion diamonds i don't know and you didn't know like should i freeze the ice should i put cupcakes in there you didn't know that was the problem yeah well i kind of love um first of all i'm gonna like toby maloney's recent book is pretty fucking amazing it is james beard award winner no uh but like Toby Maloney has always been like one of those people that he, he also looks exactly the same as like 22 years ago. Well, like, you lose Toby, hair, you lose hair 30 years ago. You're going to look the same like forever. Right. I no, mean... to- Toby <laughs> is the best. No question. Shout out to Toby Maloney. I fucking love him so much. It's like I remember there was a moment in time where like they were teaching me all about the booze and all that stuff. And um. We were all hanging. He lived in Williamsburg and I lived in Williamsburg. And um, we all went to Union Pool, like back when Union Pool was. Which is a hookup spot. No, Union Pool back when Union Pool was, it was just a hipster spot. Like this is 2004. Like I I met them in 2010. But like, so, but Union Pool, like back in the day was like, it wasn't a hookup spot. It was like, I remember like. I remember meeting the white stripes there. Like I remember like narrator, it was totally a hookup spot. <laughs> I did not do cocaine in line for the bathroom ever. I promise you. Understood. But anyway, and I did not smell like firewood every night. I remember like waking up in blackout, like and being like, where'd I go last night? And like smelling myself. And I'm like, oh right, Union Pool. Oh, I smell like fucking firewood. I was in Union Pool. But um 
I remember Toby Maloney. I remember like we went to like, I don't know where it was. I think it was like Milk and Honey or PDT or something fabulous or Pago, like all the places they would bring me to like teach me everything. Or we went to Hero to see so-and-so at the, doing the hard shake, like something, something that they were teaching me that was amazing. And my eyes were like fucking pancakes, like eyes wide open and just fucking ridiculous. And um, I was in fucking heels four inch. I was always in heels back then. And, um, it was icy. Like the entire, the entirety of New York city was just paved in ice and wherever we were, uh, Toby had to walk me back to my apartment. Um, he didn't have to actually, he didn't have to do anything. Um, but he did. And he's like, I will walk you home. And I remember kind of walking back to my gate at my apartment. I'm like, Oh, it's going to want to come in. Like, um, like, no, like he's a friend and he just made it so easy. He's like, no, I'm going to like, he never, Toby has never hit on me. He's never been a, it doesn't matter if he's attracted to me, but like, he's just always been this ridiculous, professional, kind, just consummate, hospitable human that is like, and this is what we're doing. Like, uh, I am taking you to your door and now you're at your door and you will go into the door. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, hello. Bye-bye. You know, like Toby has always been one of those people that I have trusted so implicitly uh, in so many different ways in my creative standpoint, in my um, God, professional standpoint, in my personal standpoint, Toby Maloney is one of those people that I will always, um, he gets kind of everything for me. He taught me everything. Joaquin's there too, from a kind of a cocktail perspective, but Toby really took me under his wing. Jason too, who I fucking love more than life, but Jason taught me business and Jason's just fucking Jason, you know, but like fucking Toby Maloney. I love so much. Did I bore you? Am I boring you, Philip? No, I just got a serious email from the wife. So, hey, I want to ask you something. We've been through a lot, you yeah, and I. Totally. More in the last three hours than in the past 13 years. <laughs> if you could tell the Rachel who started her PR life in New York, if you could tell her, not one, but three things. They don't have to be related to where your career wound up, not about bars or hotels or restaurants. But when baby Rachel came to New York and got into PR, what would you tell her now that she could understand and use? Three things. And that's all. Oh, that's all. That's all. Seriously? You know, that's like a ridiculous question. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if it was one thing. Well, how about one thing? Just one. Well, honestly, one. that would be lame. We're reasonable. If it was one thing, I would honestly tell her, don't do anything different. Don't do anything fucking different than anything you did. Um. And there's a lot of reasons why I would say that because I've had a lot of regrets recently and I've sorted out those regrets 
and have realized that I shouldn't have done anything differently. So you asking me to go back and give advice, I can do actually. Not just about work. I mean, about no, no, I think. Don't afraid to be fucking poor. Number one, don't excellence. Love that. Don't be afraid to be poor and destitute and to like, oh gosh, like struggle. The struggle is where the fun is. The struggle is where the, the journey is the, the the way is the destination. This it's just so fun. Like it was fun for me. It was hard. It was fucking hard, but the struggle, like if it's easy, ugh, gross, boring. Like who wants it fucking easy? New York isn't easy. Why would why would you want fucking New York handed to you on a fucking silver platter? How boring. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you a story that I'm not going to say who's who. I think both of us know who it is. But it's very funny. Um, I met somebody who knows a global superstar in Hollywood. Sure. And this person's son started a tequila brand. Right? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Okay. And the tequila brand... Um, they did a, 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 a little launch event in, in New York City and, and the founder of this global celebrities uh, brand, you know, he's a young guy. He's, you know, 25, 26. And they're doing an event there. Everyone's there. And there's a distributor there that I know. She's older. She's like 45. And she's trying to talk to this 25-year-old kid who started a tequila brand, you know, saying, hey, it's tequila by millennials for millennials. And she's striving to think of something to say to this 25-year-old kid, uh, the son of a global, you know, movie superstar. And she says, hey, so... What's your favorite place in Mexico? And he looked at her and said, oh, I've never been to Mexico. Fuck off. Oh, yeah. That's a real thing. I'll tell you you the name of the brand after we stop taping. But that really happens and recently. We have a lot of of things to talk about (laughs) (laughs) pre-taping. Maybe we need to have a Philip Duff show overtime. <laughs> no, nobody can ever know anything that we are subscribers only. <laughs> I will every day. I was I was actually incredibly like honest about everything, except for like I would never get anybody in trouble for anything. No, I don't want to either. No, I mean uh... Yeah. <laughs> but that really <laughs> happened. Well, are we done? Okay, we're done. When you tell me, yeah, at the end of your journey, where you are, yeah, uh, I'm going to give you a couple of examples on a day to day basis. Things that make me happy, right, yeah. are the occasional cold shower, or when I see something around my apartment, a tiny little thing, like for instance, 
we always had the scrubby brush in the sink, in the sink, and it bugged me. And then I put up like a little command strip and hook it up. <laughs> oh my God, that makes me so happy. So yeah, I well, want to know about the minor things that make you happy. Give me one or two. God, it's going to take it. I don't even know what it is. Like, the thing is, is I know people, I am so fucking easygoing. Like, nothing actually annoys me at all. It's other people who, other people who are super fucking ADD who are annoyed by me. Uh. That's weird. Like, I'm like, uh, and I'm super type A. Like, I need shit to be I need everything to be done the way I want to done it. Like do it and done it. Anyway. You suck at delegating. I need everything to be done the way I need them to do it in business. But in personal life, I'm like, I don't give a fuck. Do anything in the way you want to do it. What is your little treat for you on a day-to-day basis? Is it masturbating? <laughs> well, I do masturbate every day. It sounds like it's not a treat, though. No, it sounds just, like work. Honestly, shouldn't everybody masturbate every day? I mean, is that weird? Okay, now it really sounds like work. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's not work. You're gonna it's masturbate. Like, no. I mean, honestly, like, I don't understand how masturbating is a treat. It's like well, speaking on behalf of all the men of the world, we're way ahead of you. Like, of course, we're and like what you guys don't know is we're all doing the same thing. We're just not talking about it. However, so, ironically, women have the better toys. We do. But you I, also, you were nodding you also, before you even you finished your drink. You don't need the toys. You have an entire thing. And honestly, when we bring the toys to help you do the thing, you're like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You're like, oh, really? You don't need this vibrating ridiculousness? You're like, no, 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 no. I'm good with my hand. You're like, oh, okay, cool. It's like, you don't need it. Like, I've never I've never gone into it. Like, I saw a tweet from a female comedian I know recently, and she was like, oh, I hate giving hand jobs. Why do I have to do it in front of the expert? Like, you know, <laughs> I get it. On the other hand, you're like, why do I need to do it in front of the person that knows how to do it best? I'm like, I'm really fucking bad at this. Like looking at experts, like, I mean, uh, maybe I'm naive. I'm well known for being an innocent unicorn, but I mean, we don't really have male vibrators. Like, you know, it's like you know, there are, you know, they're there. They no, just... there's stuff out there. There is. I haven't experimented. I've been lazy. Uh, just don't be lazy. That's it. Well, I think also, that's probably it. No, it's just like... Okay. I mean, this started off, by the way, as a if discussion talk, about if, if hanging up gonna, dish if we're, if we're actually going to talk about, like, female kind of fucking, like, all this shit, I would tell you, A, number one, men don't need it. Women do. That's why we have so many vibrators. It's not. It's not, like, a hard situation to, like, fucking realize. Fair? Oh no, absolutely. I I think the technology is more advanced for women. Yeah, and it should be. Because we need more. And it's not, and it's not because men are bad at it. It's not, there's no weird kind of like like masculine female kind of fucking bullshit happening. It's just 
it's really hard for women to orgasm. Like you actually have to like hit like nine like separate spots on a fucking thing. And it's like it's like Aryan's hearing, really. It's like you've got to, you know, go here, go there, seek the treasure. You're not gonna is it are we still on like video? Are we talking post it? You're gonna edit. Oh no, this? we're still recording. Oh, for fuck's sake. Okay. <laughs> when we're done recording, I'll tell you about other things. <laughs> okay, so ladies and gentlemen, the Philip Tubbs show ends now. 